This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Terry South and Jeff Simpson. The gang's all here, and we are ready for another great show, another great day for you. Top of the morning to you. Uh, boy, uh, still at it when it comes to football and the president. Last night, uh, last night's game um, between Arizona Cardinals and the Dallas Cowboys, again, taking a knee. Yeah. Not, and, you know. President even, not liking it. Even More Jerry, booze. even Jerry Jones took a knee. Yeah, and even that Jerry was difficult. Jones. You know how hard it is for Jerry Jones to get down <laughs> on then, one knee. And then as the camera panned, there was like an equipment guy that just sort of like leaned at the hip. It was yeah, like, yeah. come on, man, Jerry Jones is on yeah. a knee. The man's in but his eighties. He probably has a dual knee replacement. You right. know, everybody on the sidelines has a knee problem. Probably at some point in their life. Even the water boy. Yeah. Has a Gatorade knee. But then ball. they <laughs> they stood up with linked arms for the actual anthem. Yeah. Now, I mean, when they knelt down, there's just a raining of boos coming out of the crowd. Well, and, and and Donald Trump said the most boos he's ever heard in the history of the world. Something like that effect. Some, yeah. Like, it's such a big statement because how do you know? Yeah. See, I, isn't linking arms during the national anthem even more unifying? Oh, yeah. That's, you know, the Rockettes used to do that. I mean, imagine everybody at a baseball game just standing up and holding hands during the national anthem. Wouldn't yeah, that be huge? That's really big unifying. I mean, I think I think there's something coming out of this. Even Jerry Jones was one who used to be down on the guys that would take a knee. There was actually talk that the Cowboys organization had gone to the players and said, don't do this. Ah, really? Not that they'd do anything, but they would prefer you not to. So there was pressure from management to not yeah. Kneel down, so no one had ever, no one had ever actually knelt down, and so this from was the Cowboys kind of, side from the team, and so that's, this was kind of a big decision where the whole team decided to, including the owner who was a donor yeah. to Donald Trump, and to so do this. and so you wonder if some of this is, this is what they still have to clarify, and I think uh, Joe Cannon brought it up yesterday. Hmm. Are they this is, is this kneeling because you messed with the NFL players? You know, saying trying to single out certain players that should be fired. Now, and we're saying we're all kneeling because we're unified. You mean now? Now, because before it was yeah, pretty clear what they're it was, doing. It was very much. Now about, you're saying it's kind of muddled because you yeah. still is it police brutality? Is it the president? Because who you, wouldn't kneel? Who wouldn't kneel to say, "Don't mess with our players. Don't mess with our people. We're one." Are they? They are have they, the right to speak. We're yeah. one. Are they kneeling in? in just uni- are they unified with the players yeah. who were kneeling before? I mean, it'd be really they, powerful yeah. for the, each place to release then a statement of what that meant to them. Yeah. I think that would really help because it's kind of confusing to a lot of people. But I mean, because there are multiple well, issues here. Like, don't mess, don't attack our or institution. A, but people have the right to speak. Mm-hmm. That's really a. Then uh, and then also. We may not agree with what they say, but we'll stand by them. They have the right to say it. I mean, just clarify. And many NFL organizations put out press releases over the weekend. Yeah, oh, did on they? this, did they? They didn't like mention the president in any of it. Oh, really? They hmm. just said we're unified with our players. About what? Yeah, about what? See, I, I yeah. don't think the teams huh. want to get. They don't want to dive into the specifics. One, the Seattle Seahawks. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mention President Trump in their press uh-huh. release. They so were like they're yeah, unified against, here we go. against Wait, President so Trump. So they put these out before they they took a knee. Yeah, it was before okay. the game started yesterday. Yeah. 
I, it's, I think it's a really important thing. And like we were saying yesterday, I think the NFL has an incredible role to play in helping the violence with blacks and police. Mm-hmm. That I mean, they have a lot that they can do in that regard. And so maybe the NFL even needs to come out and be a leader. Lead. See, in the NBA kind of got ahead of it last year. They didn't want to have people kneeling because they saw that was causing a lot of chaos. Yeah. And, and so every team, everybody walks out for the, all last season, linked arms for the yeah. national anthem as they stood there. So. How much chaos could it create, though? I mean, I could see if they were kneeling down during gameplay, yeah, how that would be a problem. You know how hard it is to play kneeling down. <laughs> Actually, I'll bet you somebody like Shaquille O'Neal, he would have had a better free throw average. Probably. He had just knelt down. <laughs> Done anything different, Any- yes. <laughs> anything different. Even Mark Anthony, the singer, is getting into this. He's telling Trump in not-so-beautiful words that he needs to be quiet and focus more on what's happening in Puerto Rico, which is... Well, it seems like nothing. Well, I mean, the, there's the, things, but not enough. Well, the, what, the, what they're saying, though, is it's... Uh, what was the words they used? It's like it is a humanitarian crisis, a, uh, a catastrophe, some of the most powerful words about the devastation going on there. Now the dam there has broken, and now more water is going to come flooding down. So is he is he just quoting Trump instead of using his own colorful language? No, no. He was he was actually uh, more colorful. He well, because yeah. he uses the expletive that Trump uses, right? Oh, I think this was a bigger expletive. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. On he uh, Trumped, Trump. I guess Trump said, "Gentlemen, get those gentlemen off the field," or something like that. Yeah, he said something. To, this <laughs> this was a word. Yeah. But okay. interesting thing, it's it kind of goes with what we're talking about today, mm. in a way, um, about keeping terrorists off the internet. Mm. Many are arguing they just Twitter just needs to shut Trump down, just shut him off. But would that not be stopping his ability to speak? Now, in many Twitter has a policy when it comes to abuse on their system. Uh, yeah. as people are, and many times Trump has come up right up, right, right up against it, or as many people feel he's crossed the line when it comes to their policy on if you do this, we're going to shut you down and you know kill but your account. Wouldn't it have to be more like hate speech or yeah? What that's has what he the, done? That, that's what they're saying. Is there's certain times where it's like he's right on the edge he's of on hate that speech, edge of hate speech. Oh come and on! And so man. it's a well, Twitter has to have a line, and they said yeah. the, the line's pretty close. But then there's this thing of they you can't just shut down the president of the United States. Yeah, that you that would know, cause he more does of a problem. Have the nuclear codes, mm. and he knows where <laughs> they live. Well, yeah, you know. But just the you know politically, and then just the just a firestorm they'd have to deal with if they decided that President Trump had crossed, had crossed some sort of line with the some of the well, attacks. Well, if done. we're yeah, terrorists. I mean, tell me how many incidents he started just by throwing out a tweet, including uh, what's his name, Ted Cruz's wife. Right. I mean, everybody from Ted Cruz's wife to John McCain multiple times have been. The recipient on top of every issue, the border, mm-hmm. DACA, uh, everybody. So. Has he tweeted Rocket Man or has he just said that in his speeches? Oh, no, he's tweeted it. He's oh, tweeted it. Oh, he's it. tweeted it. And I think he – didn't he sing – didn't he open for somebody singing no, Rocket Man? No, he did not. No. Have Was that you, someone else? Yeah, yeah. Have you seen there's – a, there's a photo going around on Twitter of uh, Kim Jong-un holding the uh, pink backpack – and no. people are getting really creative with Photoshop and putting all sorts of stuff in there. <laughs> it's scary because uh, now North Korea is saying that we have declared war, which means now at any time they have the right to shoot down our airplanes that fly near their space, near their airspace. 
They think we've declared war? Yeah, because Trump said that the North Koreans will not be around much longer, which they're saying is a declaration of war. So all of that. <sighs> do you remember when the presidents didn't Twitter? They didn't tweet. They didn't done do to Twitter. Well, yeah, it was before Twitter. What was that? Just one presidency ago? Yeah. Did Obama tweet? He did, but he tweeted Probably like. Probably not personally. Good stuff? Occasionally he did, but <laughs> oh, it was sure. stuff like, hey, like congratulations for winning the championship or yeah. here's a kid, here's a person, here's a cause. Yeah. Nothing like, you know. Did we ever think that we'd have a president that was such a, you know, a tweeter? Finish that. Oh, OK. I thought you were going to say something else. No, but like he's he's so into tweeting. Really, you need policy, right? You need somebody to say, we don't do that. It used to be like an integrated part of an entire communication yeah, plan. there was a plan. Now you know, it's just his it's mood just in the chaos, morning. Yeah. Just to give you an example, every once in a while you'll go into a bathroom where there's a sign up there that says – Please don't flush X, Y, Z down the toilet. Yeah. And they've put that sign up there because somebody's done it, right? And so if they were to come out with some sort of a Twitter policy for the president, it is kind of like, really? We have to come out with this well, legislation or this rule? It's not a bad idea. They could probably just put it on the wall in his bathroom and that would eliminate the, the early morning tweet. <laughs> Please do not tweet, Mr. President. Do you remember? And then put a list of everything that's gone down. Anyway, crazy, crazy stuff going on, including in a minute we'll talk too, I guess, about uh, Hillary Clinton. She's she's mad because now six people in the White House have been active in their email. So, well, using unauthorized email. <laughs> using unauthorized email, which Unsecure, is the know. ultimate height of hypocrisy. Hillary Clinton is saying, and well, oh, there's, this is her announcement of that. Last year, about this time, it was the most important thing on the planet. Yeah, do you remember? She had a server. Well, yeah, and and Comey was involved. There was and, an investigation. Mm-hmm. Oh no, there isn't an investigation now. Oh wait a second. Hold on, is there? Or isn't there? Uh, yeah. So she's she's a little ticked now, but who wouldn't be? Hey. But according to Anthony, uh, Mark Anthony, hmm. hey, worry less about that and worry about Puerto Rico. Absolutely. Thank you for cleaning that up, by the way. When in doubt, we can always really, truly worry more about those that are suffering from the tornado or the hurricanes um, than anything else. Let's get to the headlines, Terry. Uh, clean it up for us. What's so going you, on? As you were saying, Puerto Rico on the brink of humanitarian crisis, says the governor. Uh, Ricardo Rosello, after a week of monstrous Hurricane Maria, knocked out the island's supply of power, water, and fuel. The governor's called for Congress to increase funding in order to prevent further disaster. With little response from Washington, people were abandoned for seven days. A resident of a retirement community in San Juan said there were sick people on the floor, thrown here, thrown there. Uh, They're not giving us anything, not even hope. At least come around and give us hope, even if it's a lie. President Trump finally referenced the growing natural disaster Monday night in a series of tweets that apparently tried to uh, blame Puerto Rico's financial issues for its problems. He said something like, you know, Texas and Florida, they've recovered well, but Puerto Rico, they owe a lot of, a lot of money to Wall Street, which will have to be addressed at some point. But, you Hold know, on, we're, he's bringing that up right now. Yeah. And then he's like, well, you know, we're trying to help them with the recovery, but, you know, they have financial issues. It is an unincorporated U.S. territory. Yeah. So maybe it's less, maybe it's more unincorporated than U.S. But territory. they owe a lot of money to Wall Street, so oh, that's that difficult. makes sense. Yeah, if you owe time. money to Wall Street, you, you probably ought not help anyone. It's okay. kind of con- 
confusing there. Senator Lindsey Graham jumped to Senator John McCain's defense Monday night as President Trump continued to lash out against the Arizona Republican for his opposition to the latest Obamacare repeal bill after Trump posted a video to Twitter mocking McCain's complete turn from years of talk on repealing the Affordable Care Act. Graham told CNN that McCain earned the right to do whatever the back-to-back expletive he wants. That's yeah. Wow. They were, they were Bible swears, but you know. Yeah. McCain earned the <laughs> wrath of Trump by voicing opposition to the Graham-Cassidy bill last week, saying he couldn't in good conscience vote for the last-ditch effort to repeal Obamacare. His opposition followed the July GOP health care bill that he tanked with a decisive no vote. To any American who has a problem with John McCain's vote, all I can tell you is John McCain is willing to die, was willing to die for this country, and he can vote any way he wants to, and it doesn't matter to me, Lindsey Graham said. By the way, the author of the bill. Right. So the the GOP author of the GOP bill that isn't going to pass because of McCain is saying, get off his back. Yeah. He's done more for this country than anyone complaining. It was uh, interesting. Hmm. It was on part of a town hall last night on CNN. Monday night, White House Press Secretary, or Monday, White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders reassured Americans that President Trump did not actually declare a war on North Korea via tweet. Sanders' statement ran contrary to claims made earlier in the day by North Korea's foreign minister, who claimed that uh, North Korea now has the right to shoot down any airplanes, as we talked about. Mm. Uh, Trump said Saturday that North Korea won't be around much longer if he keeps intimidating America. They thought that was enough to call that as <sighs> well, a uh, didn't threat he of say, war. Didn't he say a few months ago that America won't be around much longer? Could be. Mm. We've not declared a war on North Korea, and frankly, the suggestion is absurd, as they said from the White House. Hold on. Is, is Sarah Huckabee, she's still around? Oh, yeah. Every, you don't, you he don't lo- hear he as much from her anymore. Eh, she's not as um, inflammatory as Sean Spicer Spicy was. was yeah. I bet you the ratings for the afternoon press conference are down also because oh, yeah. she constantly says, we'll get back to you, and then doesn't. Yeah. Well, That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. There you go. An Indiana University freshman doing remarkably well after he was trapped in a cave in southern Indiana for nearly three days. Bloomington native uh, Lucas Cover. A 19 joined the caving club at University of Iowa on uh, a beginner's trip last Sunday to Sullivan Cave, which is about 20 miles south of Bloomington. Somehow he managed to get separated from the group, and when he reached the entrance to the exit cave, he realized the gate was padlocked. They have a gate across the front of the well, cave. Which I think that usually means something. Nah, he's stuck. He uh, said he couldn't get a cell phone signal, so he screamed for hours. He didn't have much food or water, so he licked moisture from the cave walls to stay <sighs> hydrated. <sighs> as soon as I noticed the droplets of water in the cave, it seemed pretty obvious what I had to do, he said. Do you remember when we took Jeff on that tour of that cave and he kept licking the walls it was psychedelic <laughs> he said yeah that's my thought is like what's growing in there he spent most of his time in the cave talking to himself napping and foraging for water he says that his parents texted him monday when he never responded they knew something was wrong and they filed a missing persons report when members of the caving club found out he was missing they went back to the cave and rescued him late tuesday he says he was relieved and he felt lucky to be alive he doesn't plan to go spelunking anytime yeah. soon. right smart kid Smart kid. Nothing better than I like to just put my head right underneath a stalactite mm. and just wait for the mm. drip to just come off. Like, mm. Now, what about a stalagmite? Mm. Don't ever sit on a stalagmite. That's what my mama used to say. It's good advice. Yeah, it, it really is. <laughs> she said that when we went caving, spelunking once. You know what? You know why they call it spelunking? Why is that? Because that's what it feels like when you hit your head. Spelunk. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> I just made that up right there. Yeah, it sounds like it. It's a spelunking joke. Okay. Uh, you kept calling it caving. 
caving. They do they call, call it. it caving, or do I'm they really sure. call it spelunking? I'm not an expert on the I mean, topic. Spelunking is the official term. Mainly, that story is because the guy was licking a cave wall to stay hydrated. That's his situation. That was pretty desperate. He was totally desperate. <laughs> but who? I mean, yeah. At some point, if you're that thirsty after three days, what, what day was it that he started licking the walls? Probably day one. Yeah, because I, I believe the the heightened tension of probable death mm-hmm. makes you thirsty. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, totally. <laughs> well, and he had pretzels. He's <laughs> actually uh, he's now become Batman. His experience oh, in the really? cave. He's a cave expert. Yeah, you got to watch out for the guano that, in the cave. <laughs> wouldn't that be ridiculous if you're stuck in a cave and all, and you have no water? You're really thirsty, and all you have is pretzels. Would that not You're bite? Like, oh, why did I bring these on the you hike? Do, what you do is you just pick off all the salt. Just pick it off. You can get the salt from the stalactite. <laughs> just pick off all the salt. Yeah. And then, yeah, then you just suck on it. That makes me think of the Seinfeld line: "These pretzels are making me thirsty." Don't, I didn't, Nothing. Didn't, didn't know that line. Yeah. Mm. Um, speaking of picking off the salt and sucking on pretzels, huh? Jeff's on a new diet. Wow. And luckily, it does not. Uh, it Jeff lost like a pound and a half last night. <laughs> he was sweating it off, and he only ate, uh, you know, like five chunks of pineapple. When you're this close and you're worried you're not going to get your goal, your mind will make you believe all sorts of things that probably are not true. You were having like optical illusions? No, like I, when I exercised on the elliptical, I didn't turn on the fan. Because I thought, oh, I'll sweat more if I don't turn on the fan, and then I'll wow. lose more weight. And then I thought, oh, I could really use a soak in the hot tub. And I thought, nope, my body will absorb all that all that water, and will it'll it, add or weight. Would you, I think you'd lose weight. You'd do you sweat. see what Do you see what I'm saying, though? Yeah. These are just the things that you start to believe when you're this close. And then didn't you tell me you had a dream that your pillow was a big marshmallow, <laughs> and you were eating it? Isn't that what you told me earlier? <sighs> there well, may I, or may not be a few bites out of my pillow. How how close, um, <laughs> how close are you? I am point three pounds Holy away. We wow, wow! Thank you. The game. Well, that was for me, not you. No, thank you um, for getting this many people to our show today. Yeah. So the game ends tomorrow. I can weigh in starting Thursday. I can weigh in Thursday or Friday. So I'm going to weigh in probably first thing Thursday morning. Hold on. Why do they have the game end and then they give you like two days to weigh in? There's just some leeway. Oh, that I'm, is such a that's – a, that's not right. Are you discrediting my weight loss? Program? Yeah. It just seems like if, if the tournament ends tomorrow, then we ought to be weighing in tomorrow. No. Because if a coupon expires tomorrow, it's still good tomorrow. Huh? Hmm? Well – Right, but then just have it end, then it it expires end of night tomorrow. So really, it expires really Thursday. Well, nobody's going to stay up and weigh in at midnight. Oh, aren't they? No. Would you not? Get if, that thing done, wake up in the morning? If it was the lowest weight, absolutely I would. <laughs> yeah, go get up and have a really big breakfast. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Well, congratulations. I'm going to make think, it. I think you're going to make it, yeah, especially if you don't eat for two more days. That's the plan. That's totally the plan. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about can the world really ever keep terrorists off the Internet? How much controlling of the Internet do we have? How much control over it do we have? 
And uh, can you stop it, really? Or is it just something we better get used to? That's straight ahead on The Matt Townsend Show. The Internet can be a dangerous place, especially on social media. There are child predators, serial killers, and even more recently terrorists that are uh, using the Internet to actually lure their, their, their people to their cause. Is it possible to keep all terrorists off the Internet? Here to speak with us today about uh, celebrities and their rights to talk about politics as well as also uh, terrorism. And, and but by the way, we probably ought to throw in there even our president's use of social media. And, uh, you know, some people are alleging or saying that maybe it's time Twitter shuts him off. Is that even realistic? And is it even possible to keep certain uh, conversations from happening online? Our guest is Shantavia Johnson. She's a professor of law at Drake University Law School, and uh, she's been on the show before. Shantavia, thanks for being with us again. Thank you for having me, Matt. I appreciate it. You bet. Is this, is it realistic to think that we can actually, you know, turn off social media sites um, so that terrorists and others can't use it as a platform? As hard as it is to imagine, I, I think there are some instances where it is possible. And we've seen recently Twitter, Facebook, Google using technology to do that. And it's hard to imagine, but I do believe it is possible. Is it something? I mean, because it gets, it seems like a, um, it seems like a lot of the social media platforms are are being surprised by certain people how they're using their sites. Um, even now, we're finding out that Russia had been apparently buying uh, ads or using mm-hmm. Facebook to to imp- impact our elections. Um, and a lot of these organizations, they seem shocked by what's happening. Do you, do you buy that? Do you buy their shock, or are they behind the scenes trying to do stuff? What's really happening? You know, I don't buy their shock, but what I do buy is the idea that technology moves so rapidly that it's impossible to predict what's going to happen next. There's a famous professor who said once that technology is neither good nor bad. It's neutral. But like you pointed out a few minutes ago, there are a lot of bad people using technology in, in bad ways. And so I, in what I, what I think ultimately is that these social media companies, tech companies, um, we as consumers of those products, and our governments really have an obligation to work together to figure out what we want to see online and what we don't, and then work toward those goals. And there, there are ways that that can happen. In fact, after London's most recent terror attacks, British Prime Minister Theresa May called on other countries to collaborate, collaborate on Internet regulation. Um, is Talk about what, what, could, what they could do. What, what are social media sites uh, able to do? What, what, what are they currently trying to do? Yeah, so that's a hard question because what governments think tech companies can do and what tech companies have said – we can do is completely different in a lot of regards. So in terms of what can happen, um, governments and tech companies can work together, and we've seen that start to happen. In fact, just in the past couple of months, we've seen Microsoft, Twitter, Facebook, and Google form a consortium. And this consortium really is designed to combat terrorism online and fake news and other issues that that you alluded to earlier. And what happened just last week is they met 
at the so during the the meetings last week with the UN, the UN General Assembly that took place last mm-hmm. week, they met with European leaders to talk about what could actually happen. Those same companies have met with leaders in the UK to combat violence that that is um, being posted on their social media websites here in the United States. We had for a couple of years a um, a board of advisors, a digital economy board of advisors to the president and the Commerce Department that would also make suggestions to the Commerce Department, to the president, about what should happen with respect to the digital economy, including these questions about privacy and terrorism online and that kind of thing. So we're starting to see more of these public-private partnerships where tech companies and government are talking to each other and working together. Hmm. Now, how successful that is, it's hard to say right now because all of this is new and happening really, really quickly. That's but, true. But those are some things that we see that we see happening. Because I, I guess nobody owns the Internet, right? And so shutting right. it down. But there are some countries, uh, North Korea, for example, China, for example, even the U.S. in certain situations. In your article, you talked about how certain times they, they, they do shut stuff down. Oh, that's certainly right. So in Syria in 2012, Assad shut down the Internet for all of Syria for some say three days, some say a little more or less. Uh, we've seen it in China. And if you've ever visited China, you know if you try to go to your Facebook account, once you get there, you can't do that because China aggressively blocks access to certain, web- I think, 18,000 websites or hmm. more, including Facebook, Google, the New York Times. Wow, all the good ones. <laughs> right, all the good stuff. <laughs> and so you see some countries, and you see that a lot less in the United States, but some countries take very, very strong approaches to what they allow their constituents, their citizens to see. That's interesting because, again, the rest of us are just trying to, you know, outdo our neighbors on social media. But <laughs> right. Betty, you also start to wonder if – if sometimes these these sites are also being scapegoated, you know, for other lack of security or lack of intelligence communication. I mean, especially in Europe, the harder part seems to like organize and to to actually integrate and communicate across all these boundaries, across all the borders. That's exactly right. And it is really tough to say, hey, Internet, you're the problem. There are more than a billion active websites on the Internet. There are, I think, two billion users on Facebook alone. Hmm. So it's impossible for one company, no matter how many people they hire, to be able to say, okay, well, we'll just shut down all the stuff uh, Germany doesn't like, stuff the U.K. doesn't like, stuff the United States doesn't like. So there are a lot of moving parts here. And... um you know, some of these some of these companies have been sued by or and have been taxed by the governments in other countries. So there's probably they probably don't you know want to lift up the skirt. They don't want to show everybody what's going on behind the scenes too, and let government in so deeply. Oh, of course. So I mean, legally, that's got to be a big threat to to their freedom, right? Oh, that's exactly right. Here in the United States, in particular, tech companies have been very, very hesitant to invite the government in to what they're doing and then very hesitant to any proposed legislation that might regulate what they're doing. Now, the U.K., on the other hand, 
has taken a much more proactive approach in terms of considering legislation that might fine companies if they don't get stuff off the Internet within a reasonable amount of time, however that's defined. There's a famous case once in France where eBay was allowing users to sell Nazi memorabilia, which is illegal in France. But, of course, eBay is an American company. Mm. And so there were all these questions about whether a country could stop, an, a, a foreign country could stop an American company from selling stuff on their platform. And so there are all these different ways that you can incentivize tech companies and other Internet companies from allowing stuff to be posted online. But it's really, really difficult to do. And there's been a lot of pushback in that regard. Well, and two, I guess, so that's that's the chaos at the governmental international level. Uh, meanwhile, we also have chaos with how much you can, you know, say with our own, even our own president. Some people are saying that they should shut down his Twitter feed. And um, but, I mean, people have the right to speak. And I mean, I guess to some point until it reaches a level of of terrorist action, um, or hate speech, I guess, it, Twitter and these sites don't intervene? Well, so that's an interesting question. So what you have there really is one of the most difficult intersections between private companies and government and law. So a private company is created, for the most part, in many instances, to be a commercial enterprise, right, to mm-hmm. make money and to say, here's how we're going to do this. Here are our goals, our internal mission statements and that kind of thing. And oftentimes, the goal of making money certainly contradicts with whatever our laws and freedoms say about, as you just pointed out, freedom of speech. And under the First Amendment, I mean, really, you don't have a right to say whatever you want on Twitter, because Twitter is a private platform, and the First Amendment really only applies to government Interesting. And Twitter is not a government entity. So Twitter gets to decide whether they want terrorist accounts on the website, whether Donald Trump gets to tweet about things that may or may not offend large groups of people. And and so we have this interesting interplay where you have government officials, perhaps speaking in their official government capacity, about First Amendment types of matters, on a private platform that mm. we all can see. Ooh boy. That that's interesting. Boy, you could you could really turn upset the apple cart, couldn't you? <laughs> that's certainly right. So with respect to, for example, terrorist content, Twitter recently put out a statement saying in the first half of this year, twenty seventeen, they had removed three hundred thousand accounts that oh, promoted wow. terrorism. And that's a pretty significant decline for for a company like Twitter. So Twitter can decide. There are certain things they just don't allow to be posted. What Twitter has said about Donald Trump's uh, Twitter account in particular is, you know, there's a balance between their internal goals and missions and what they allow people to say and the fact that this is the president. Mm -hmm. So they are matters of public concern. So it's it's a very complicated thing. And um, yeah, and it's it's a, it's something you just probably don't want to mess with. And 
<laughs> because he's also the president of the United States, no matter how many people are are screaming or pulling for it. And I mean, I guess, too, this gets to all types of hate speech. And I mean, how how low does this go as far as the grievances are concerned? Because terrorism is one thing. But what about bullying? What about other, you know, kind of lighter levels of it, but still that impact lives? Yeah, so so when you ask that question, one of the things that comes to mind is the kind of significant cyberbullying that took place with Leslie Jones, who's mm-hmm. an American comedian, an African American woman who was targeted by large, large groups of people with racist comments, sexist mm. comments. They posted nude photos of her after hacking into her cell phone. And lots of Twitter accounts, including very, very popular Twitter accounts, got deleted, got removed, because Twitter as a company has said this type of speech is unacceptable, this type of activity is unacceptable. And so in terms of how low it goes, unfortunately, it goes as low as as we are willing to post online, and by we, I mean society. Yeah, right. So as bad as people are, you know, that's how bad the messages can get. Oh, man. Well, uh, we appreciate your insight. Let's take a break, Shantavia. We're speaking with Shantavia Johnson, um, who is a professor of law at Drake University and is named one of the top 40 young lawyers in the U.S. by the American Bar Association as we walk through the discussion of can the world ever really keep terrorists off the Internet? Learning some very interesting things. We'll continue the discussion up next right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. We are speaking with Shantavia Johnson, who's a professor of law at Drake University Law School, and she's walking us through uh, an article she wrote um, titled, Can the World Ever Really Keep Terrorists Off the Internet? Uh, To a degree, sure. Um, The hard part, I guess, is getting every single one. Shantavia, thank you again for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Matt. So you do say we do have the ability to, to... take off a lot of them. I mean, I guess getting every single one, it's like cancer, right? It's you can mm-hmm. you can get most of it and you can cut a lot of it out, but to get every single cancer cell, you may not be able to get. So, that is a good analogy. I would take it one step further though and say even defining what we mean by terrorism yeah. is difficult. And so when we talk about combating terrorism online and terrorist content, there are so many questions about what we even mean by that. Do we mean any type of video or picture that remotely refers to terrorism? Do we mean something more specific where there's recruitment kind of happening? Hmm. And so there are all of these really, really interesting questions that can't just be answered as a matter of domestic policy. What we think in the United States is considered terrorism could be very different in other countries, whether it's uh, the U.K., whether it's South Africa, whether it's any number of other countries. Yeah, because we've had them talk about it on the show about that some of these sites, they're not actually – they're not recruiting. Uh, they're not like sending the recruiting videos. Some are through Twitter, but they use Twitter as a way, or some of these uh, sites, to aggregate people to find out who is 
isolated, mm-hmm. who is uh, you know estranged from the their their area where they live, and then they work them almost offline. Then they take it offline. That's exactly right. And so some of the technology we're talking about are really apps like Telegram, Signal, WhatsApp, Wicker. These are just communication mechanisms. The same way I might text a friend. Right. And so there's a there's this weird intersection between stuff we do all the time, text each other, send emails to each other, that kind of thing, and what is actually promoting terrorism. And so issues like that, issues like privacy, issues like freedom of speech, which we talked about a bit yeah. earlier, criminal conduct standards, all of those things are at work. Mm. Hate speech. I mean, there's really – there's no end to – to to how difficult this topic is. And so it really tells me for these companies, um, how do they do it? Because, like, how do you write the algorithm that's supposedly mm-hmm. going to eliminate that list that you just gave us? Right. And so that's where I think government partnership is helpful because oftentimes things that we can't define just as a matter of, you know, you and me sitting here talking about, legislators have within certain countries. And so we need partnerships, people working together to answer some of these questions. The other thing you mentioned, though, has less to do with government and even these tech companies and more to do with just figuring out technology. So algorithms are one thing. Artificial intelligence is another. And we're moving toward artificial intelligence in so many ways. And the technology right now really is not that reliable. Mm. The, the, the CEO of Google actually last week at this UN meeting, this it really is like a sideline meeting at the UN, mentioned, well, Google's general counsel, not their CEO, but he mentioned that the technology really has not evolved to a place where you can just say, hey, machine, get rid of all the terrorist content, and it happens immediately. Hmm. Yeah, it's not – it's not it's not going to work that way but it does seem like i mean artificial intelligence is one thing but there's also just human intelligence and some would question but it maybe there's a way that we as citizens could be more actively involved in you know disliking a certain thing or reporting certain sites right and so that that's how facebook actually integrates a lot of their takedown uh, mechanisms with uh, their algorithms. It's by people like you and me who see something online and report it. And they say, hey, Facebook, this shouldn't be online. Now, one of the problems with that is what Matt Townsend thinks should be online and what I think should be online can be very different. So you have to have people, human beings, looking at all of these requests and saying which ones are legitimate, which ones really do violate our terms of service. And that, and frankly, that's been difficult for Facebook already. A couple months ago, I don't know if you remember, a guy live streamed himself killing yeah. an elderly gentleman. Yeah. Oh, that was tragic. And it was tragic. On on and, Easter and Sunday or something. That's right, on Easter Sunday. And so the algorithms can see, you know, there's a gun mm-hmm. in this video. A person looks like they're dying in this video. Is it real? Is it a movie? Is yeah. it artistic? Is it whatever? And, and so it's difficult already for for us as human beings to identify this stuff. Way more difficult for machines in some regards. And going hand in hand with that from the terrorism standpoint 
is these calls recently, particularly by European leaders, that, that these tech companies should get rid of this stuff within two hours of it being posted online. If, it, if they can keep it off of the Internet completely, that's really what these uh, presidents and prime ministers and right. other leaders want. But if they can't, they want it off of the Internet within two hours, which is incredibly difficult for a lot of reasons. Well, and it's funny. I mean, it's funny because uh, a lot of these sites can get my credit card the minute it expires within two hours. They'll shut down my services, but they can't. They can't shut down a terrorist site. But it, it is. It's so complicated. One of the things that I find, I guess, ironic about the whole situation is the internet really came to be, um, didn't it? And, and has really been magnified because. People, it was people running it, people connecting to people. So there wasn't one just government entity. There wasn't one government owner of the internet. And it was, it's really about people. Um, and it seems like if we try to, the minute you try to go take it over with more, you know, structuring from governments, they're just going to have a workaround. They're just going to find another way through it. Yeah. And so. It spoke, what you just described really is something called cyber libertarianism, hmm. which is Internet freedom, essentially. Right. And it's the belief that people should be at liberty to pursue whatever they want on the Internet, good or bad. Yeah. And the less intervention from government, the better. But it, when the Internet was created, which you kind of alluded to, it was really created as a U.S. government program a Department of Defense-type program where people could engage with other people. And so we have a lot of tension between what the Internet was envisioned as and what it has become. into. That's exactly right. Hmm. Boy, and you can – well, I mean, with WikiLeaks, with all of these other things that are anti-government, um, mm-hmm. it's – you know, it really does show you that there's there's some reins that are hard to get on there, and there is this libertarian kind of mentality out there about it. What do we do as parents? Um, what can we do to make sure we are making it safer for our kids and safer for um, our families? Well, so the the big picture and the and kind of what we do day to day, I think are. Similar but different. So from the big picture, what can we do? If you're a Facebook user or a Twitter user or a LinkedIn user or whatever, mm-hmm. you can say to those companies, whether it's by email or tweeting them or reaching out to them, this is what I find acceptable. This is what I find unacceptable. We can hold those companies to certain standards the same way we do with our elected officials in some regards. We can vote for people who um, are talking about these things in the way that we want, whether it's through privacy concerns, First Amendment concerns, that kind of thing. Mm. Whether it's votes that talk or money that talks, those things do make a difference in terms of what happens. So, for example, Facebook got a lot of backlash because of these violent videos, murders and rapes and everything else showing up on their website. And users said, this is unacceptable. So Facebook has made a lot of changes, frankly, in the past year. Um, from In terms of like a day-to-day type of thing, uh, you can limit the types of websites that you visit. You can limit the types of posts that you allow to come into your home through your devices. 
uh, something you mentioned earlier. If you see something that you think is inappropriate, don't just say, oh, man, that's inappropriate and keep scrolling. Report that thing. <laughs> right. And so, so these companies can keep statistics and data about what their users are saying they don't want to see. And, and if enough people say this is not what we want to see on the platform, trust me, at some point policies will be implemented so that at least certain groups of people won't see that type of content. That's right. Man, Shantavia, we appreciate you. Great insight. And, uh, again, Shantavia Johnson doing what, doing what she can to uh, keep us safe. She's a professor of law at Drake University Law School. And you can find out more by going to her website, shantaviajohnson.com, uh, to get uh, more from her wonderful work. We'll continue the journey, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, tech, it's just, it's confusing. Every day it's changing. We talk about uh, AR, IR, VR. JR. JR Ewing, I think he got shot. Yeah. I don't even know if we solved that problem. I th- I thought you did last week, actually. Yeah, it was his girlfriend. Well, now I don't have to see the show. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> You'll be fine. <laughs> I'd let it go. There's a lot of other things <laughs> I might put in front of it. Uh, not that we don't love the show Dallas, but um, what do you do? Because so do you do I, I personally don't believe you can just take everything off the Internet that's bad. Why? Well, how? Because these are the same people that are taking all of our secrets and then exposing them to the world. Right. right. WikiLeaks, places like that. They're they're the ones the, the people behind it that are running it are the ones also that know how to get all the information. So mm-hmm. to what degree can you actually ever get rid of all terrorism? You can't. It's not going to happen. But if you don't know it exists, then it doesn't. So if you just don't use the Internet anymore, huh? The, the other mm, problem would be <laughs> Facebook and Twitter will jump out and they'll find an account They'll, they'll flag it as, okay, this is obviously terrorist content. Right. They'll shut it down. That person that had that account then goes right back in, and you can set up five more accounts in like 10 minutes, you're done. Right. And you're just back to work. Right. Well, and cranking they, out that, that material. And then they, they send you an email saying, we're not terrorists. We're just CNN, and everyone thinks we're terrorists. Right. But if a tree falls in a forest and nobody's there to hear it, did it really make a noise? Hmm? Yeah. People people feel Says like you. on um, – what is it? On Twitter that if you could actually make the person have to use their real name when they post. Ah. Because you can put aliases and stuff. Interesting. If you use your real name, then that will slow this down and I don't think it will because you could just make up a name that looks real. Well, it, but if you had to like have a vera, a vera sign name that you have signed right. in, that is your identity, then every site you ever create has the extension at – Matt at Dr. Matt Townsend. Well, if my name were on certain things and if you could only respond as yourself, mm-hmm. that might change some things. I always appreciate when, uh, when Prince Mumbabi of Africa emails me and uses his real name mm. and asks, uh, well, yeah, it does it tells me you? that I've won a, a ton of money. Well, yeah. And then you send your money to him, right? So you can get your so you can get your money. Yeah. 
Yeah, I like it when they give you their name so that way you can look at them up and get the right address to send your money to. Oh, yeah. That's so – Nothing uh, worse than when you want to help somebody out mm-hmm. and you like want to send thousands of dollars so that you can eventually get your millions and yeah. yet you don't have their name or where you don't know where to send the money. And bless them, those people that, that need money, they, they just don't have the grammar skills that they need. I know. It's, I think it's cute. Yeah. It's endearing. <laughs> I feel so much closer to them that I want to just send them money. Anyway, folks, uh, don't fall for all the tricks and watch out. Let's, let's be the we – we can guard our own internet use, right? Let's just get better ourselves at it. That's the goal. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff Simpson and, of course, Terry South. The gang is gathered to get you through the day. Today we're going to be talking about Puerto Rico. Is it President Trump's New Orleans? Is it... Uh, is it the new aftermath of Katrina, the, the, the terrible impact that that had on uh, the Bush presidency? Well, it may be. Millions of people are still uh, waiting for aid. One week later, they have no food. They have no water. We're going to be talking about it right now with Terry South in the headlines. Terry, what's going on? Senate Republicans decided Tuesday they would not vote on their health care bill after efforts to garner support for the legislation fell short. The bill named for uh, Lindsey Graham, Bill Cassidy, two senators, appeared doomed on Monday when moderate Sen- uh, Senator Susan Collins joined the conservative Rand Paul and Senator John McCain in opposition. With three Republicans, solid no votes. The GOP can't muster the 50 votes needed to pass. Republicans have till uh, Saturday if they want to try to do something in a three-day effort mm. for a fifth or sixth time to see if they can not How many times can you strike out? Well, they said, uh, Lindsey Graham said in a speech on Tuesday that he's not giving up on the bill. He says, we're coming back after taxes. We'll do this again. Okay. So we'll give it one more, well, three more, whichever. But uh, Trump said he'll introduce his tax plan in Indiana later today. Oh, lucky for them. So we'll get some We'll find out. Yeah, this that. could be big. Hmm. North Korean government officials have been reaching out to Republican analysts in Washington to try to get a better read on what's going on in President Trump's head. Oh, like Sean Hannity? Good luck. Not sure. This is out of the Washington Post. It says, my own guess is that they are somewhat puzzled as to the direction in which the U.S. is going, so they're trying to open up channels to take the pulse in Washington, said a former uh, State Department official. Uh, they haven't seen the U.S. act like this before. Uh, a North Korean expert who is uh, Bruce uh, Klinger, who is a North Korean expert now with the Heritage Foundation, says that North Korea reached out to him, but he declined their invitation. Still, he observes the country is on a new binge of reaching out to American scholars and ex-officials. Reflecting North Korean officials' confusion are the questions they're bringing to Americans. Why, for instance, are Trump's top officials, notably Defense Secretary James Matt, or Jim Mattis and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, directly contradicting their president so often on foreign affairs? The president says something, and then you get your defense secretary and the secretary of state saying something completely different. Well, it's just... This happens every day at home. Oh, yeah. Where it's, I say the kids can do something, my wife says they no. can't. And they're like, L- let's go ask the other one. It's, uh, <laughs> what this is probably about is this is just a good marriage. Is it? 
apparently. Okay. Everyone has an opinion. It's normal. They're confused. Normally, the, when the president speaks, that is that is the position. It's just many question if he's as informed as he might need to be. And and they keep saying his Twitter feed is the official uh, like like message words, right. the, the official. Oh, well, unless he deletes it after he. Right, wrote it. So or, now we know if you if you don't get the answer that you like from President Trump, just go to Mattis. That's right. In other news, four assistant basketball coaches from Arizona, Auburn, Oklahoma State, and Southern California were charged Tuesday morning in a federal corruption investigation that might only be the tip of the iceberg in a three-year FBI probe that focused on coaches being paid tens of thousands of dollars to steer NBA-bound players towards sports agents, financial advisors, and apparel companies. Wow. Did you see this yesterday? No. This was big. Each of the coaches is charged with bribery conspiracy, solicitation of bribes, honest services fraud conspiracy, honest services fraud, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, and travel act conspiracy. Wow. Bunch of stuff. The U.S. Department of Justice said each of the coaches faced a maximum sentence of 80 years in prison. The FBI conducted an elaborate undercover operation starting in 2015, managed to keep it all secret. The NCAA wasn't made aware of the investigation until Tuesday when they said, hey, we're having a press conference. You might want to be there. Hasn't this been going on forever? Oh, yeah, sure. I didn't know you weren't sp- Maybe whole- I need to talk to Don, because I think I've kind of been doing those things here at BYU Radio. Oh, boy. There's a Ooh. whole fictitious movie about it called Blue Chips. Really? Oh, Where, yeah. yeah. The Blue Chips see, like, Nick Nolte? Yeah, Nick Nolte's the coach. Or no, he's the, is, yeah, he's the coach. I think so. And, I've never uh, seen Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's all, I mean, it's fictitious, and they yeah. play things up, but it's the idea that uh, you have a player. You want him to come to a certain team, and so you give the family a hundred thousand dollars, or well, in blue chips, they yeah. give a family a tractor. You well, know, you've that heard kind of, thing. of Kobe Bryant. <laughs> you've heard of LeBron. Kobe didn't go to college. No, but like Le- these guys, they all have agents. They're mm-hmm. making eighty, ninety, a hundred million a year. So what they said was using wiretap surveillance video and undercover agents and cooperating witnesses. The FBI was able to document coaches accepting bribes to steer their players to certain financial advisors and or business managers. Mm. In other cases, high-ranking Adidas employees working with others to pay uh, prospective college athletes uh, families to ensure that the players signed with an Adidas-sponsored school and then signed with Adidas once they turned pro. Adidas is fighting with Nike to get players. Because you get a player, you can sell shoes. Wouldn't it be great if there were FBI agents that were undercover as basketball players? Oh, it's like 21 Jump Street, except basketball. Why is he the only one wearing those uh, dark socks that go up to his knees? Stuff for that. Stylish. So yeah, this it's it's wide ranging. It it, it goes right to the whole student athlete concept. Yeah. Where where this is an amateur sport. They're They're, not even pros. There are billions of dollars in college sports, and they're finding the underbelly that's been there all the time. But now they've been able to. It seems like this makes the argument that they really are professional athletes on some level because professional companies are all after them. They're fighting for them. So and finally, in a lighter note, or not, Baltimore just announced its very own Fatberg. Uh-oh. CBS Baltimore reports the congealed lump of fat was found between Baltimore Penn Station and the 1700 block of Charles Street, if you know Baltimore at all. The fatberg is comprised of fats, oils, greases that harden and collected and other things that don't break down in the sewers. And uh, we've talked about this. We've had a guest on that talks about the problem in London. They had a massive fatberg they found again. Yeah. The guy we yeah. talked to is from uh, Dublin, Ireland. They have a huge problem they had there. A huge fatberg. Authorities said it was block- that this fatberg was blocking 85% of a two foot wide, 100 year old pipe. So it always comes down to the so older it's, it's pipes. It's just a little two foot wide pipe. They found that while looking for the source of a sewer 
overflow in recent weeks, including one on September 21st that sent 1.2 million gallons of sewage into a nearby river. Ugh. Ugh. So, yeah, Fatbergs. I think that's the noise it makes as they're getting it out of uh. there. <laughs> when it, when it pops out. They have removed it. It took uh, it took many, many a garbage truck, they said. Well, yeah. So And so let's have the new guy do it. Yeah. <laughs> so Where's the Bruce? The poor new guy. Send the new guy down in there. Oh, can you imagine? How do you – I mean, I guess you just chip away at the Fatberg. You just shovel it out. Yeah. It's just, it's just stuff in the yeah. – Pound by pound. <laughs> just gross. Blah. Let's give everybody a break. Just everybody take a breath. Mm. Oh, Fatberg. Is that it? You'd think you could just light it. <clears throat> Maybe the uh, lack of space yeah. in the pipe might cause it some extra danger. Well, they, you just <clears throat> blow out the pipe. Maybe <laughs> Shoot it down about a mile. Yeah, who needs the pipes? Good, good point. Thank er- you. Good point, said the bagpiper. Who is exhausted and tired? Who needs the pipes? Hey, um, Puerto Rico, what is going on? Mm. I think it's more about what isn't going on. I mean, they, like you said, these these are people that could go get on an airplane and fly right into the United we, States, don't even need their passport. Yeah, there have been some polling over the last few days, and generally America doesn't understand these are American citizens. They have yeah. all the rights that we do. Meh, just but everyone's a, like, yeah, but we're, we're still out on that. They're in a territory. That's crazy. And so here we are several, I mean, we're almost, is this two weeks almost? Yeah. Ten days at least. Ten days, yeah, I think so. Uh, since the uh, the hurricane hit the island and they're still just getting kind of sporadic supplies. The U.S. military mm. has now sent their uh, uh, some ships to the to Puerto Rico. As the, all, the health, all, the medical ship that mm-hmm. can take care of people. All the network. Now, granted, we have Irma, there's Harvey, so things might be a little stretched there, but well, there's been nothing... Of a of a huge, like organized effort to go there. There, I saw interviews with the governor of Puerto Rico and the mayor of uh, San Juan, I believe, is the biggest city there. And uh, they're both like, "Hey, we're still here. Hello. We need some help." They showed the mayor walking through waist deep water on a on a bullhorn, still trying to make sure people are okay where yeah. they're at, that kind of thing. So she's still out there every day doing this the water hasn't receded so two or three people died in intensive care because they ran out of diesel fuel to Ooh. run the generators to keep the intensive care going wow so imagine that's your family and then uh president trump made some statement about he said he said you know they sitting at a money. table well yeah he made that on twitter saying that they have some debt and problems of that nature and this is after the weekend of 20 or more tweets about the NFL and zero about Puerto Rico. Until yeah. someone pointed that out probably on and some then, TV show he was watching. And then, I'll be there Tuesday. Right. Hey, speaking of Donald Trump's tweets, would you yeah. be more afraid of his tweets if he could tweet twice as much? Oh, yeah. That would be double. Twitter's talking about it. Oh, you mean oh, double the length? Double the characters, yeah. Yeah, more is not better. Not I, if you're President Trump. Yeah, apparently Twitter's changing from 140 characters They're to 280. About it. Let's, let, let's just let's take a vote on that. Let's just agree we don't need that. You've heard that in the acting world, less is more. Yeah. Do you think people tell President Trump that? Less is more, well, President? T- they don't tell him anything. <laughs> I don't think so. Because, well, I don't think. Because he, he'll do the opposite. I think he's tweeting most of the time when no one's there. He's sitting at the bottom of his bed the, in his robe, one of the, pumping one of the, out 140 characters. One of the more entertaining things to watch is there's certain reporters who will take the 
whatever uh, showing of Fox and Friends that morning, and they'll wind it back in the time to line it up to when the tweets come out, and when the, you can see that they air, in a, air a segment, and then the tweet comes out. And then they air a segment. He's reacting to what he watches he's, on this one show. He's literally watching Fox and Friends. Yeah, he's live tweeting a show is kind of how this works. I can't help but think of a Saturday morning cartoon whenever you say Fox and Friends. Yeah. <laughs> it's the <laughs> best cartoon. Coming yeah. up next on Fox and Friends. D- depends uh, <laughs> who you talk to, yeah. So we've so, got to somehow get help so to Puerto yesterday Rico. Yesterday a flotilla was announced, which is a series of boats, that yeah. are sending a bunch of supplies Speaking down. Speaking of fatbergs. They probably should have left <laughs> a week ago, you yeah. know, and then they're just right. sending them out right now. Well, do you remember how fast the president got to uh, Houston's? Almost to the point where it's like he maybe he, should wait a few he, days. Yeah, he couldn't do anything. Yeah, he's in Austin. He couldn't actually get to Houston. So maybe so. he learned that, hey, let's do the slow deal on Puerto Rico. Well, this is too slow. Yeah, it's way too slow. To, it, it almost sounds like it's turning into the and, Katrina of President Bush. Right. Just slow response. Well, you have the president saying everything's going great, which is kind of what President Bush yeah. said. And then you have the the FEMA director who uh, stepped up and was saying, hey, there's some complications here, but, you know, we're doing this. We're doing, you know. And so there's no acknowledgement that there is obviously a lag in supplies getting there. Man. You know, and then the FEMA director is like, well, local people have to do more. It's not really the best answer mm. when uh, they well, the really problem can't. is I feel bad for Puerto Rico because they just don't have the political power. No. So they are just they're not respected or appreciated. I don't know what it is to the degree they need to be. So meanwhile, people are dying. People are dying. In fact, even the LDS church. Um, yeah, they're gone. Missionaries out of and that's only happened twice in four years. There's missionaries all over the country, all over the world, like 400 and something missions, aren't there? And um, they pulled out the missionaries. So that's a really good indicator that there's nothing there. Yeah. Anytime you have to be evacuated from a country when you're serving an LDS mission or just in general, that's scary. I think the other one was in Cebu, Philippines, when there was a tsunami or what was it there? There was – I don't know. There was just horrible storms that flooded all of the Philippines. My brother served an LDS mission – and he was in Honduras. Wasn't any natural natural disaster of any kind, but his life was in danger apparently really? because they there were threats on the missionaries' lives. So oh, he yeah. had to be evacuated. No, well, he was in. Yeah. I'm sorry. He was in. Yeah, he was in Honduras. Had to be evacuated to El Salvador. Wow, scary. That didn't seem. Does that does that seem doesn't seem safer? Oh no. Oh, is it? I mean, no. maybe maybe not. But, um, but see, when I was uh, when I lived in Argentina back in the day, they thought we were spies. They thought we were CIA agents wearing our white out, shirts. Turns out you were just really Riding. really nice. Yeah, we were just really we were just missionaries. Yeah, talking about the gospel. Not now, not trying to spy on you. We this, can't even make lunch. This is a for instance about Puerto Rico. Yeah, right. There's nothing to say this is true. There's nothing to say this is actually happening. But do you know who won the 2016 presidential Republican primary in Puerto Rico? Oh, mm. uh, let's see. Um, okay, it would. I would say Ted Cruz. Rubio. Rubio won. Yeah. Rubio. But he won. Florida Rubio. Like he got 74 percent of the vote. Where's Rubio? He went down there. He's already been down there. He's been down there. See? He toured the area and he came back like these people need help. He was talking about it yesterday. He that's cool. He owns he owns that district basically. Basically. 
I guess. So is that a factor? Trump got 14% of the vote. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Hmm. I'm sure that has something to do with it. Well, he is still talking about how he didn't win win an Emmy all those years ago well, for I, The Apprentice. Is this a grudge? Still holding well, on to that. What he's worried about is when he goes down Tuesday, what will the crowd size be? Well, yeah. Mm. It's always a consideration. I mean, number one, the whole place is decimated. If they did it like they did in Texas, they'll just you know, send out an email to supporters and make sure there's plenty there. I mean, there have been only 14% of them are supporters. No. That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. It's still like 5,000 people. And maybe many of them aren't even supporters anymore. Yeah, I don't know. It's oh, probably going to take rather. Sean Spicer that, with him. That, that's something that's been talked about, but I mean, there's no proof of anything. No, it, but there's it, something there. Mm. I mean, it smells a little fishy. Yeah. but I Maybe mean, that's just the hurricane. That may happen now all across the board. Every time a state comes up and it runs against the president, it's like, oh, how did they vote? Oh, well, we'll see how well, this will turn out. By the way, a uh, little update on the Alabama race. He, oh, yes. He lost. He did. So, And then started deleting all the tweets mentioning Luther every, Strange. Every lost. tweet that he ever put out <laughs> with Luther Strange's name on it. So he lost it. So maybe he's losing some of his power. This is the first out of like six Wrong. elections that he's backed that he's lost. Wrong. Or like he said, maybe we just, as a nation, are just tired of the winning. You're wrong. And so we're Did just trying. Did he say winning or whining? Winning. Oh, okay. And then we're just trying something else for a couple of days. Let's try some losing for yeah, a while. Yeah, just give it a shot. See how it feels. Holy cow. Oh, well. You know, life is good. Hey, our guest today, we're going to be talking about the weirdest thing. Sonic spicing. Sonic spicing? Mm-hmm. Uh, so do you believe that um, a flavor like sour has a sound equivalent? Does something mm. sweet have a different sonic quality? Interesting insight. They're finding out that if they just play certain music while you're eating a certain food, guess what? It might make it sweeter for you. Really? Or it could actually make it more you know, sour or more salty. Even sound that makes it more squishy. Straight ahead, folks. We're talking about the future of food and uh, sonic seasoning. This is the Matt Townsend Show. There are four senses most people think about when they're eating a meal. Taste, touch, sight, smell. But there is a fifth sense that can make or break a meal-eating experience, and that is sound. Here to speak with us today is Professor Charles Spence, a professor at Oxford Department of Experimental Psychology and the author of the book Gastrophysics, the Science of Eating. Uh, Dr. Charles Spence, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the show. Now, is it true that um, actually the, the sound that we're, we're listening to while we're eating could change how we interpret the taste of the food? Uh, absolutely, and I think it can do so in a number of different ways, in fact. Um, we rarely think about sound when we're eating. It's kind of the forgotten flavor sense. Right. Um, but it is there in the background always. Everything from the loud noise of certain restaurants or, or when we're eating in the air through to carefully curated music that may, through its speed or loudness, actually get us to eat more or to, or to, to drink faster than we otherwise uh, might. 
Um, and I think it's, 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 yeah, it's always there. It's, it's starting to be studied more systematically. And, and that really, rather than can music, say, change the taste of food, uh, we're now realizing it can and in many, many different ways. Wow. I mean, it, you, you can tell that they use music, um, shopping music, <laughs> that maybe makes you not think as much, that maybe puts you into a nice days so that you buy more. I buy kind of the psychology behind Muzak and things like that. But you're saying actually, and some of the research is showing, you can actually, something might taste saltier by just playing certain music, or it might taste uh, sweeter by playing different music. Um, so now in this kind of whole new area, it uh, goes under the name of uh, sort of sonic seasoning. The idea is um, that we do associate certain music with sweet, certain music with sour, other music with salty or bitter tastes. Uh, we've even got music now to bring out the spiciness in a dish or the creaminess in a chocolate. Um, sounds bizarre, um, yeah. but it kind of all starts. Uh, we've been doing this for a decade now in the lab here in Oxford. Um, we're bringing people in, giving them something to taste, like maybe something sweet, milk chocolate or a, a bitter dark chocolate, and then put them in front of a virtual keyboard and ask them to, to, to play with the knobs and dials till they find a sound that matches what they're tasting. And they kind of ask, what, what, what do you want me to do? That's a bit bizarre. <laughs> but if you get 10 or 20 people, you'll find that the majority, if they have or are imagining a sweet-tasting food, will pick a note that's higher in pitch, Whereas if they've got a, a dark chocolate or a black coffee taste flavor in their mouths, then they'll tend to go for lower pitch notes and more likely to go for sort of brassy type instruments than uh, piano, say. And we have now these musical, almost these musical menus saying if you're trying to construct a spicy music, make it sound like this, this kind of noise level, this kind of tempo and rhythm. And you can really provide those things to, to creatives to either pick sound off the shelf that's been you know, around for years that we're all familiar with that just so happens to be sweet or to actually uh, design and create new pieces of music and soundscapes with a sole specific aim of having something that's nice to listen to but which can be used to season your food uh, to help meet your own kind of taste world that you live in. Wow. Isn't that – I mean, I guess this is cutting-edge uh, psychology, really. I mean, because it, then I start to wonder, what, what are we going to do with it? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, we, we try and do uh, as much cutting-edge psychology as we can here <laughs> in the department in uh, Oxford. Um, so it is kind of bizarre and wacky, um, but that's sort of fun, too, in that uh, quite often, you know, as a psychologist, you tell people about what you do and what you're researching, and then they say, well, I knew that already. Yeah. Uh, I don't need a psychologist to tell me that. <laughs> Duh. Uh, this is something that, that is like, one of the most surprising things. Who would have thought that music had a taste? It doesn't do literally, but nevertheless, it can change the taste of food. That is surprising to people. and makes it fun to actually sort of demonstrate with people um, um, uh, and convince them of something they didn't believe a moment before. How are we going to use it? Uh, now we, we're convinced it's real. Then um, I think we're still optimizing and fine-tuning. So, you know, what is the sweetest music? We've created some pieces, others have created a, a other sweet music pieces, and we've kind of putting them all into the mix and getting people around the world to listen to those tracks and try and judge who's come up with the sweetest of all music, who's come up with the most bitter music, and then use that in, for example, um, in, uh, it could be in healthcare settings or in, uh, even in a cafeteria that opened just recently in Vietnam, the Jing Cafe, they have said they're going to play sweet music all day long uh, <laughs> so that they can add a little bit less sugar to their cakes uh, and pastries. And hopefully it'll taste just as, as good as always, 
but we'll be having the sweet music to uh, counteract a slight reduction in sugar. So it could be uh, healthy. Uh, yeah, yeah, hopefully. Um, but I should say, I don't know how long-lasting these effects are. I know they work in the moment, in a day, um, on different people night after night. But if you at home were to you know, get a, uh, an app that would scan through all of the music um, on your mobile device and, and just play you sweet tunes at mealtimes, of music that you like to listen to anyway, it just happens to be sweet, would that work for a week, for a year, for a decade? If you mm. learned, listened sweet, to sweet music every lunchtime, I'm not sure. And we kind of need to, to, to do that research to know um, really in the long term. But I think it is coming. I've seen airlines too. British Airways launched a soundbite menu a couple of years ago based in, in part on our research uh, that, again, allowed you, the passengers in long-haul flights, to pick uh, a meal um, and then to tune in in the headset in the seat rest to music that had been specifically selected to bring out something in what they were tasting. It seems like it's it's going to take off because nowadays people want an experience and that this oh. seems like another experience that takes life to the next level. That's right. Um, so I think yeah, we're, we are still in the, um, the, uh, the years of the experience economy. It's kind of been growing and growing and especially you hear amongst millennials, but I think from, from our experience, it's all sectors of society are kind of interested in sensory stimulation, almost challenging their senses in, in new ways. Um, and I think it's something that um, uh, yeah, is an, makes for an engaging experience. And importantly, that in the past, you know, we've had painters who've been inspired by the colors they see when they listen to music, kind of mm. synesthetes, who have these bizarre connections between their senses. And that has been used as kind of the, the impetus or the stimulus to, to make these new multi-sensory experiences. But now we're saying that, in fact, um, we all have surprising connections between the senses. We all think that sweet is high-pitched, I think, or most of us. Yeah. Most of us will, think, will say that, um, uh, you know, if I asked you, is a lemon fast or slow? Most people will say, it's got to be fast. Yeah. I don't know why, but it just has. <laughs> um, so we're, we all are full of these kind of surprising connections between our senses where tastes have shapes and sounds and pitch and instruments attached. Um, and when you study that systematically, you can feed in to the creative process. And I, I see a, a growing number of um, music producers, sound design agencies, composers, even wine judges who are getting excited hmm. uh, by the findings and want to create something themselves, an experience based on a science that is hopefully engaging and, and, and makes you think in, in a different way about... Uh, yeah, uh, how your senses work and the kind of what kind of world we live in. You bet. We're speaking with Professor Charles Spence, a professor at Oxford uh, Department of Experimental Psychology, about uh, his book Gastrophysics: The Science of Eating. Uh, and so, is is this whole field then called um, Charles? Is it called gastrophysics? Uh, that's right. Um, so it's kind of a, a funny sort of technical sounding term, um, a new word, but there to try and capture. On the one hand, gastronomy, um, and the other, psychophysics. So the gastronomy saying, I'm interested, and we are, who study this are, are interested in real food, in nice food experiences. And on the other side, the psychophysics is really a, a way of talking about sort of systematic psychology, where you study people and give them lots of different things to taste and see how they respond. And that kind of scientific approach to the mind of uh, people like you or I who are tasting, who are enjoying food, that's kind of the subject matter, and to show... We were not chefs as such, but our interest is really in showing all the other things that we never thought about that impact the taste of food from music 
through, the weight of the cutlery in your hand, the colour of the plate you mm. eat off, how many people are at the table, the lighting levels, all of these things do influence us in ways that we're now slowly starting to unpick and hopefully put to back together in engaging, immersive, experiential ways that may ultimately be able to help nudge some of us at least towards a more sort of sustainable food behaviour, both for ourselves and, and ultimately for the planet. That's powerful. It's um, we talk about uh, these, but there are some people that have. I guess it's called synesthesia, and they've always had um, a, a deeper connection to sound. Is that right? And and um, yeah, between between different um, kind of unrelated things. So I guess the most common kind of synesthesia would be those who see coloured letters or coloured units of time for whom you know, Monday is literally blue and Tuesday is greenish-orange. Um, and those people do exist, um, and I think they're really interesting. But to be a synesthete, your strange sensory connections have to be idiosyncratic. If they're shared by everybody else, hmm. they're not synesthesia. It's just kind of the, the way the mind works. So it's, it's, a, it's an unusual pairing of the senses or of, of, of inputs. And that's what makes it different from these kind of correspondences that we're studying, because these correspondences are present in all of us, I want to say. More universal, they're not, yeah. Yeah, yeah they're, they're, um, they're not as vivid as synesthesia, because when you taste a lemon, you don't literally see something fast. When I give you something sweet to taste, you don't suddenly hear a high-pitched sound as a synesthete might, but it's still there under the radar, and we have the techniques and the tools to, to measure and assess these connections, to think about where they come from, why we have them, uh, and then to kind of feed them back to, to, to creatives to, to do something fun or engaging with. That's powerful. I mean, honestly, I, it, it seems like, again, if somebody lost their eyesight, you would, uh, you'd still be able to draw on these other sensory inputs, that, that, and it seems like they'd even be heightened. Um, that's right, that uh, uh, there is kind of a popular trend towards dining in the dark, uh, taking away the sense of sight to give people a different kind of dining experience and often, often sold as putting yourself in the place or experience a meal like a blind person might uh, by turning the lights off. Um, so I think that there, there is interest there. Um, and there's certainly the sense in which our brains are quite plastic and that if we lose our, our sight, that that bit of the brain at the back of the head that normally processes everything we see without the input from the eyes, it doesn't just lie vacant. Other bits of the brain and other sort of tasks say, well, I'll want a bit of that. No one else is using it. <laughs> I'll incorporate it so you find that those who are blind may be able to feel better, more uh, acute sense of touch because they're recruiting not just the touch bit of their brain but also the visual bit. When it comes to flavour... Um, uh, the, the debate has been going on for centuries, I think, about whether those who are blind can smell more, smell better, hmm. um, or not. And um, uh, it, it may be the case that the parts of the brain that we use to smell and to taste, located more towards the front of the head, are quite a long way removed from the bits of the brain that are used to hear and to see more towards the back and the backside of the brain. And hence that distance makes it a bit harder for for one sense to take over another one if it's too far away, as it were. So um, I do think, you know, t taking away a sense does, we do use it ourselves sometimes in dining experiences, uh, be it blindfolding for a course, be it earplugs, in fact, obviously yeah. even my interest in sound can be very powerful, or, or even eating without the aid of cutlery, just having food floating or hanging in front of the diners just to change the interaction and make them think a bit more about yeah, how much of what I'm 
perceiving, enjoying in a meal is really coming from which sense. That's <laughs> such an interesting world we live in. We will continue this discussion more with Dr. Charles Spence and uh, his book, Gastrophysics, The Science of Eating. Man, what will they think of next? And uh, what more do we need to learn? I mean, there's so much we just don't know, isn't there? We'll continue the journey in just a minute. Welcome back, friends. We are talking with Professor Charles Spence, a professor at Oxford Department of Experimental Psychology and the author of the book Gastrophysics, The Science of Eating. And uh, Charles is walking us through some really powerful uh, new learnings about um, that, you know, drinks or I mean, and foods, they they and flavors, they they have a pitch, a correlating sound, Um, maybe the sweeter uh, Foods have a higher pitch sound in our psyche, in our head, and dark uh, dark chocolate, for example, might have a lower pitch sound. Um, is this – I guess, Charles, uh, how does this – how did this come to be? Why would we need to have pitch and sound as part of our eating or our, or our, one of our senses as far as what we're eating? Yeah, so um... – it is surprising to us, uh, this connection between pitch and taste and between pitch and flavors and aromas and textures, too. Where does it come from? Um, well, I think our idea is, um, on the one hand, to say, if you look back over the centuries and, and the way that people have talked about flavors or aromas, perfumes and bouquets, um, then they use the language um, of, sort of uh, uh, notes and harmonies, chords, mm. and those those terms can be used just as well to talk about sound and music. So we kind of use the same sort of language to describe uh, uh, flavors and perfumes as we do for music. So there's some connection there. And, that, and it sort of means something, I think, to all of us. Maybe if I were to say, um, if I were to describe a smoky note, yeah. people would probably say that's low note, whereas a high note you might be like the smell of lychee or citrus. That just intuitively means something. So where does it all come from? I think there are probably a few uh, origins. One of them, uh, it's kind of a just-so story, but um, nice nonetheless, which is that if you look at birth in newborn humans, chimps or rats, and you put a sweet taste on the tongue, what the newborn will do is stick their tongue out and up and lick to try and ingest the calories, the goodness for growth that is needed put a bitter taste on a newborn chimp rat or human's tongue and see what happens. The tongue will go out and down as a newborn tries to eject that thing that tastes mm-hmm. bitter. We're all born ejecting bitter-tasting foods because they might be poisonous. So if you just then think about what sort of gurgles would the babies make of those different species with the tongue out and down or up, it's kind of uh, uh, huh. difference in sonic quality. And that's in the world. All babies, of, uh, of course, many species will do that. It's kind of a universal statistic of the environment. And our brains spend all the time trying to pick up the statistics of the environment because some of those statistics are useful. If I, if I realize that low-pitched sounds generally come from bigger dogs and, and high-pitched sounds come from small dogs, I, I'm in a better position to judge whether to go through the garden gate and deliver the post right. without getting bitten. If I realize that fruits, on average, statistically go from green and sour and unripe to redder hues and riper and sweeter, 
I know which foods to, to, to buy or to, to collect in order to get the energy I need. These are all useful kind of correlation statistics of the environment, but our brain can't tell the useful ones from the useless ones. And this pitch and tasting, which is all around us, is kind of useless for us to know, but our brain picks it up nonetheless. We can sort of measure it in experiments in the lab or online and then sort of play the results back. And hopefully somebody will get inspired to take them and create something intriguing yeah. and entertaining. It almost seems like, too, it's, it's highlighting the fact that we're so not present when most of us are eating. We're not present on the multi-sensory levels we could be. That's right. I, I, um, and a lot of the we work a lot with chefs and mixologists and baristas. Um, and a lot of our work is really, in a way, trying to encourage diners to be more mindful about what they're eating, um, to think more uh, and try and get away. Because you know, the, the single biggest tip I, I would have for people who are trying to uh, lose a little bit of weight would be then to turn the television off when you're, when mm. you're eating. Because that you know, is the single biggest distraction. And the more distracted we are from the food, the less sensations we're aware of, of taste, of texture, of aroma and of flavor. And it's those sensations that really did help determine when we're full. That's true. It would tune us in, wouldn't it? We'd know, okay, had enough. Uh, um, And so that means that's why TV is so bad, because that can distract you from the food and means that people will consume 35% more, depending on the kind of TV show they're watching, with a TV on than off. It also makes me worry about uh, straws, drinking with straws again means that you're kind of removed from the aroma of the drink. It all slips into your mouth, slips down, almost without any sensations passing your mind. And as such, you end up consuming more than you would if you had a, a more textured, say, drink without the straw. Or even if you had you know, the whole fruit itself rather than the fruit juice, again, you get more sensory cues and hence you're satisfied, satiated with less. Um, and whatever we can do, I think, then to... Through, I mean, if I tell people don't watch the TV when you're eating, or if I tell you you should eat more of this than that, that rarely seems to work in terms of changing behaviour. But our hope is if we can make, if we can appeal through the senses and make kind of perceptibly more enjoyable, engaging food experiences through sonic seasoning or through through something else, then uh, we'll lead people in through the senses and hopefully in that way nudge them towards uh, uh, better food behaviours. And, but I can also see, you know, some of these companies that don't make great food or healthy food for you anyway, using uh, these devices to get people to just buy more. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a way, I think the the scientific insights, um, such as they are, are just that, uh, just insights about how things happen, how the mind works and why it does so. And then how those things are used uh, is is anyone's guess, really. Um, right. They can be used uh, by food companies, maybe to make you uh, buy more, but also maybe to deliver more of what you want, maybe Mm. a better food experience. Um, But they can also be flipped, and this is part of our work. As I mentioned a bit in the book is um, how we can take the insights and use them to help people who are in hospital, in care homes, who are not eating enough, whose whose, hospital stays are being prolonged because they don't get what they need out of their food. Uh, Can we use it there? Can we use it to... Uh, shift us all from kind of a uh, meat-heavy diet towards more entomophagy, eating insects. Hmm. Something you know, everyone goes, I wouldn't want to eat those. <laughs> they can be delicious. If I tell you it's good for you, if I tell you it's good for the planet, it won't change your behavior. But if I can get you to taste one and then really savor the flavor and its unique qualities, then just maybe we'll be on the way to um, uh, yeah, changing behavior and uh, using these insights uh, for, 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 for good. Powerful stuff. Boy, that would have to be some really good music. 
Charles to get me to, to eat that. But I think I think you're onto something so powerful, and honestly, I think so revealing of us uh, of us as human beings. And we appreciate your time and your great work. The book is Gastrophysics: The Science of Eating by Professor Charles Spence out of Oxford University. Boy, what don't we know, huh? Well, we'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Happy birthday, Google. You made it. 19 years young. That's wow. amazing. You were just trying to do the math in your head of how old you were when Google came out. And I don't uh, think it was correct. No, it wasn't correct. It was. I was 29. Is that right? Wrong. Yeah, I was 20. Was I 29? That's, a, that's amazing. Google is 19 years old. Think about that. You know what it also means? What? You're a millennial. <laughs> Google's a millennial. <laughs> yeah, it is. Totally is. Yeah. Google and Alphabet, they, they're, they're millennials. They may have caused <laughs> the whole millennial craze. Hey, we got to go back to this food thing. Do you think that playing music could change the pitch or change the taste of what you're eating? Maybe. Like, and have you ever had music that made you lose your appetite? Ooh. Yeah, absolutely. What kind of music would that be? Country music. What? Yeah. Country music? Mm-hmm. That's, that's when you Great. eat Great. We ribs. just lost the middle of the country. Good job. <laughs> I love country music. So it is interesting, though. You know, we talked about sounds, at, you know, when we're eating. My wife... Only focuses on sound when when I'm eating or when any of us are eating. Close your mouth while you're chewing. Why is your jaw clicking? (laughs) Well, because, you know, because this meat is really tough. And then make sure your teeth don't touch the fork while you're eating. That annoys Um, a lot of people, apparently. I had a kid when I was when I was growing up. There was a father that every time he would take a spoonful of anything, this is what it sounded like. Um. Um, um. <laughs> well, sometimes you just want to share what's really good with others. So you want to inform people that this is so good. But we don't want you to do that. I mean, I think if I can, if I can hear you, your salivary glands squirting saliva into your mouth as you're eating something, then you need to shut your mouth. Because I don't want to hear that. And some people really are more sensitive to sound, too. So some people – and my, maybe your wife is what I would call a high sensitive. So she probably hears things. She mm. she she hears stuff. Mm. Yeah, like mm. like you eating. Like what about Bob? This is, mm. this is the guy at your dinner scene. Mm. Mm. Uh. This is where someone's going to get hurt. (laughs) Eating corn on the cob. Is this corn hand shucked? (laughs) (laughs) This is, this just brings back too many memories. This is so scrumptious. Is this hand shucked? Mm -hmm. Would you like some more chicken, Bob? 
And he's like, don't give Bob more chicken. <laughs> oh, how funny is that? You know, um, it, it's such a universal thing, isn't it? And every one of us, in about a month or two, we're going to be sitting down with the family again, Thanksgiving, and we're going to relive Ooh. Bob eating corn. We're like, oh, just <laughs> – uh, I mean, and there's some foods that are, are harder to eat without really sounding like an animal. Really? Ribs. Ah. Well, when you're when you're gnawing on bones, yeah. and then well, and then there's that licking of the fingers thing. Mm. You got to clean off each finger. There we go. <laughs> there's that. There's uh, like my wife always had. We always have corn, like but not corn on the cob, just corn, and we have corn everywhere. Hmm. My kids eat corn. Like it almost has to be an aerial act. Like I can make music while I'm brushing my teeth. Speaking of corn, because people do have to brush their teeth after yeah. they eat corn. Oh, yeah, you know, just not changing, all people apparently changing the, <laughs> changing the shape of my mouth while I'm brushing my teeth. I can you know think of a song and then just kind of oh. change my the shape of my mouth yeah. and it'll kind of you'll hear that tune. So you so you do that, and this is when your wife is like. Stop it. You know, I'm, I think she's just grateful I'm brushing my teeth. Yeah, but she'd kind of like you to do it in another bathroom, <laughs> in another house, down the street. Yeah, it's the food thing's a big deal. And how about when people drink? <laughs> I only make that sound that? When, I'm, when I'm pretend drinking with my girls when they want to do like a tea party. No, but I, I, have, <laughs> I have a son that... He'll when he drinks, you can hear it, and then it's like, do you say something? Because you don't want to destroy their self esteem, but you also don't you want them to just, get punched later. You could just flick him in the throat when he does that. Just reach over and just think. Just flick just him. Flick him right so in the Adam's apple. You just, just go right to violence. It's not I'm, violent. It's just kind of you know it'll learn him. So you st- <laughs> you, you would stand up at the kitchen table, walk around the table, and yeah, then yeah, yeah. flick your kid. Well, in the if throat. they're so focused on the drink, they won't even see you move. Maybe it's That's a true. courtesy it's a sneak thing. Attack. You know, your wife has spent all this time on this meal. Maybe yeah. she made a special drink. Right. Your kids just want the, your, their mom to know that they enjoyed the meal. Certain cultural – I mean, you want to slurp. Certain countries, they like it when you have a good slurp. Do you slurp your soup? No. Really? Not, not a slurper? Not a slurper. Now, and yet if, you love Slurpees. I love a good Slurpee. But if, if, I, if I knew it pleased somebody, then I'd slurp like the biggest slurp you've ever met. Why are they called Slurpees when they're you really suck them through a straw? Well, because suckies aren't as neat. This, it's kind of a harsher term. We ought to do that next July 11th when it's 7-Eleven Day. We'll get a bowl of Slurpee. Or sucky. And we'll just get a spoon and we'll slurp the Slurpee. Yeah. No. no. I don't, I've never seen a Slurpee slurped. Well, if you that meant you've left it out too long. If you've got to slurp it. <laughs> Usually they're just, you know, they're frozen. So it's kind of a sucky. Probably not going to sell as well. It's not. It just doesn't have the same ring as the slurp. Um, Anyway, everybody's got their own little issue, right, when it comes to food, when it comes to to life. But just know the scientists are on it now. And so now we'll be able to just, uh, instead of salting up your meal, you'll just listen to some salty music. (laughs) Some salsa music? Ooh. But this gastrophysics also goes into how you set up a restaurant. Oh, yeah. How you can manipulate people into making purchases based right. on their their environment and what how what you can ask. make a more fun meal for everyone. And really, honestly, we all ought to be more present when we're eating. You are putting something 
into your body. You ought to have your head engaged. Come on! Well, stick with us. We'll continue this journey, folks. Up next, uh, more fun, more insight from the Matt Townsend Show. And by the way, we're going to be covering uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. What happens when you have a disease or a, 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 a sickness that nobody knows about or understands? It's very lonely. Straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff Simpson and, of course, Terry South. The gang is gathered. We're doing what we can to give you a leg up in life. And today we're going to be covering uh, the big story of Puerto Rico. What is going on? Have they been abandoned by us here in the United States? 3.6 million people on that little island and uh, 1.6 million of them are, are without electricity. They're without water. People are dying because they're running out of diesel fuel to uh, to run the generators Big, big headline, um, and yet uh, we don't hear as much about Houston. We don't hear as much about some of these other places that have been through major events as well. So, Well, well people are kneeling in football, Matt. That's right. We, we had the whole big kneeling yeah, in football issue. Let's focus on the big issue here. And the big announcement that Google's 19 years old today. And you can play games on their website. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, there's all that stuff. Oh, yeah, it's and great. then Puerto Rico still struggling. Oh, so yeah. really, it's happy birthday to you, Matt. To me? Yeah. Well, because they're rewarding you with all these games. Oh, yeah. So it's really like, yeah, they're it's like a gift back. to you. But if only we had a gift for Puerto Rico. But that mm. will be next Tuesday. Right. President Trump will be making his way there. So we got a lot to cover when it comes to that big story. Uh, but first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Senate Republicans quickly deflected blame for yet another health care defeat away from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell just minutes after they decided against voting on a new iteration of repealing and replacing Obamacare. To, th- to the leader, thank you. It's complicated. It's difficult politics. Instead of quitting, you allowed us to move forward, Senator Lindsey Graham said, one of the bill's authors. To huh? anybody out there who thinks that Mitch McConnell has not done all he could, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know the Mitch I know. You don't know. Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana said uh, was saying that individuals close to President Trump, as well as their allies in the media, were already prepare- preparing this week to lay the blame squarely at McConnell's feet. He has uh, reportedly been mocking McConnell in meetings and Senator John McCain. Really? Yeah. Because... Yeah. Why not? He's been calling him weak. He's like slumping his shoulders. Look how Mitch McConnell. You know, that kind of thing. You used all of those excuses when you were dating, oh, didn't yeah. you? Everyone. Oh, it's political. It's it's not you. It's, yeah. it's the president. It's not me. <laughs> Apparently, President Trump has a great... Uh, uh, John McCain with a frowny face and a thumbs down, oh. like what he did to the the, the, oh, he the bill last night. He mocks them. He's he in mocks. meetings mocking them like a you know like a juvenile. Wow, it's great. Does does he know that McCain served our country? Yes. Uh, people are questioned. Does he realize he needs these votes to pass taxes if he wants tax reform, which he says I mean, he does? It seems like they could all easily shut out the president for the next three years. They could. And then everyone's like, yeah, well, you'll lose your job. Probably not. Mm. They sh- they've been shutting everybody out for years. Right. I don't know. Just fun, fun facts. Mm. Uh, the GOP plans to raise the lower individual tax rate from 10 
to 12%, while dropping the tax rate for the wealthiest of Americans from 39.6 to 35%. That's what they're doing with their tax plan. So the tax plan is raise taxes on the poor yep. from mm-hmm. 10 to 12%. 10 to 12, yeah. Mm-hmm. Lower taxes on the rich yep. from 35% to... Uh, 39 to 35. Oh. Yeah. It's, it, it seems like... And the, keep middle America without any change? Apparently. Because I, I just found... Let me see my phone shut off. Uh, looks like they want to keep middle, the middle... So the, the lowest would be 12%. The middle is 25. And the high would be 35. Hmm. Okay. I mean, that's one way to do it. Says the White House intends to sell the plan as a tax cut for the middle class by doubling the standard deduction, which would leave many people paying no taxes. The standard deduction would almost double to $12,000 for a single filer, $24,000 for a married couple, meaning Trump can accurately argue that many more low-income earners would pay no taxes under his plan. The seven tax brackets would be collapsed to three, so they're trying to simplify the whole That'd process. That'd be nice. We have a tax plan that's totally finalized, Trump boasted Sunday. I think it'll be terrific. I think it's going to go through. While Trump will introduce the proposal in Indiana today, he is expected to leave details intentionally vague so Congress, their congressional tax writing committees, have flexibility to negotiate. Would I still get to pay about $600 to my tax planner? Oh, yeah, yeah, that won't change. Oh, Seems good. a bit out of character for him to leave things vague. Yeah. yeah, he's really a detailed-oriented president, as we've all seen. <laughs> yeah. A lot of surprises, too. I mean, it, it, but could he? can he get this through? Because if it's up to, apparently, Mitch McConnell, he'll never get this through. Yes. So why are we talking about it? What's he going to do? Not get it through. Not get it through? <laughs> okay. He could just watch TV at the White House. I mean, I mean he, again, this is why he needs Republicans. Seems like you wouldn't want to beat up your Republicans... If you're going to need them to get this I, through. I, I don't know. He's supposedly this this great uh, deal maker, and he can reach across the aisle any time and talk to his buddy Chuck. Chuck Mr. A. Chuck Schumer. And yeah, try but, to... but he's still got to get it through in a bipartisan oh. way, at least. He's not going to get all the Dems working for him. I mean, there's other Democrats that can't stand the man. There's this is, a few of them. This is fun. Um, another announcement, Trump administration reducing overall annual refugee admissions to the U.S., allowing at most 45,000 refugees to be admitted to the country next year. Officials at the State Department recommended 50, while the Department of Homeland Security wanted the number at 40. So it looks like they just hit right in the middle. 45,000? 45,000. 45, hmm. And the cap hasn't been that low since 2006. These are refugees. Yeah. Fleeing other countries. In war and, you yeah. know, yeah. So that's good news for somebody, I guess. Yeah. Bad news <laughs> for every refugee that has nowhere else to go because Americans and others have started wars in their country. Or not started them, but... Contributed. Yeah. To the outcomes. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah. then I guess they'll just go to Europe. Well, they're starting to shut their borders too more. Yeah. Hey, they've got, uh, some would argue, better health care there. Yeah. Well, they'll need it. Or health care to speak of. Hmm. Okay. So we'll see what happens. Twitter just changed the game after 11 years. 140 character limit is defining, that's its defining feature. The social media company announced Tuesday it's testing out an extended 280 character limit with some users. So not all. Mainly, I think power users want this because they're tired of trying to get all that information out in such a short amount of time. Uh, Proud of how thoughtful the team has been in solving a real problem people have when they're trying to tweet, says CEO Jack Dorsey. It's a real problem out there, Matt. 
No, it's not. This is the reason. Limit. This is really the only reason Twitter is succeeding. Yeah, it's a short. It's efficient. Yeah. Condensing is a good thing. I mean, you've read a lot of the emails mm-hmm. here at BYU Radio, and you probably thought that could have been written in a sentence or two. Mm-hmm. It's it's addition by subtraction. Twitter says uh, users tweeting in Korean, Japanese, and Chinese tweet more frequently because they don't run into the character constraint as often. Really? Their words are more succinct and, and have better definitions than, I guess, ours do. Yeah. The company hopes the 280-character limit will encourage other users to tweet more as well. Twitter users obviously have some thoughts. Uh, one of the things on Twitter I saw yesterday was that, like, you know, 140 to 280, that's like the entire collection of Harry Potter books. Yeah. You can get that all out in one tweet. Well, maybe the problem this is going to create is it's going to make it even um, – it's going to make it harder for people to troll you because now they're going to have to read more. Oh, uh, maybe. Right. Yeah. They, used ah, to, they used to have to point. read less. Especially if your troll can't get to the point. Yes. And exactly. it just kind of takes a – and this uh, this tweet was funny. It says, if you're upset about the 280 characters thing, just imagine what John Kelly must be thinking. John Kelly. Trump's oh his his right hand man his rank you know, know. the guy he, running the no, White the House is he like, heard that oh. he's like what we're back to all those pictures of his head in his hands that was a delayed reaction there like, well it's because it took that long to read the tweet do yeah. you really think there are people out there that are saying ah, I'll wait until they uh, allow me to have more characters before I join Twitter no I just think there's people on Twitter complaining but who they are they're the big talking head people. Yeah, the, the the people that want – well, that's the, the biggest complaint is that Twitter doesn't u- listen to its users. Right. Right. They Like, like the, recently they made it so if you share a link, that doesn't count against the 140-character limit. And people are like, well, yeah, why? Why would you make that – I mean, so it made it, it well, so that – benefiting you, you right? So you, you look at a, a – and all it is is you know, people put like the link out and then they try to follow it with a couple more tweets and then it's all disconnected and you don't have a thought. Yeah. Right? You just have multiple things that went out. Can you not put a hyperlink onto the text of your tweet? Yeah, but it counts – well, no, you can't hyperlink. Oh, OK. So the link would come in after and that takes away – you know, what you can actually put out there. So just they, there's questions like that. People want to be able to delete or edit a tweet and they won't let them do. They let they let you delete tweets, but you can't go back in and edit something. Mm. Unless you mm. want to. Yeah, that's yeah. President Trump is the master of the delete tweet. Right. And he 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 put out a couple. He called the uh, the prime minister of Spain, the president of Spain. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's right. Hard. And so everyone jumps on. I'm like, oh, look, you made a mistake. And I'm like, OK, whatever. President, prime minister. He could have gone in and edited that. Yeah. And he taken just deletes out, it. Put in the, but you just have to either leave it or you just delete it. And then he gets accused of deleting things. And yeah, you just can't win. You can't win. That's why but nobody the, needs Twitter. <laughs> the bigger the bigger thing is there's a very limited number of people that use Twitter. Exactly. It's not. A, it's more of the Facebook. It side seems like really Twitter's turning into Facebook. That's what they keep saying. It's doing what it can. When it goes to when it goes to the bigger, yeah, more characters. I mean, now absolutely. you're. Hey, welcome to Facebook. You're so, writing books. So nobody needs Twitter, Doctor Matt. Yeah. By and the way, you can tweet us um, at the Doctor Matt Show. <laughs> but <laughs> tweet the show. I think what's happening is Twitter wants to be Facebook, but Facebook wants to really be its sister company, Instagram. And Instagram really wants to be Snapchat. Well, no, they don't want to be Snapchat. They just keep stealing every, all their good yeah. ideas, and well, then Snapchat can't ca- catch up, right? Right, so. but that's, that's, that's how you own them. I knew two of those things you just said, really? Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, well, someday you'll be hip like me, 48-year-old hip man.
And someday you'll need a hip replacement. Too late. (laughs) Getting closer to that. Every day. Okay, interesting stuff. Let's get to the uh, the headlines, the empty news headlines. Empty news We is named after me, Matt Townsend, MT News. Headlines. The MT News team, first on the scene, fifth on facts. These are important information points. Jeffrey. So have you ever seen anything on TV that's made you panic? And I'm not talking just during the election. Yes, I have. Okay. So there were some television viewers in Southern California who were a bit startled when an apocalyptic emergency alert flashed on their screens. Ooh. So this is the Orange County Register. I'm from Orange County, so this is a bit close to home. Uh, Reports a woman says she was watching HGTV on her cable service on Thursday when the alert flashed across the screen. Uh Video shows the message included the voice of a man warning that in the last days, extremely violent times will come. What? The cool. new The newspaper says cable customers on other systems also got the message. A spokesman tells the newspaper that viewers should have seen a typical emergency broadcast test, but a technical malfunction caused it to go on longer than it should have. He says the broadcast picked up an audio feed that bled into the alert. The cable companies say they're investigating. So I wonder if maybe right. the, maybe the audio no. from like an evangelistical or an evangelic broadcast no, came on there. No, you no. don't think so? There's some guy that's the son of the boss, of the owner, the owner yeah. and he was messing around. He's kind of got a real weird personality. Was it like bring your nephew to work day or something yeah. and he kind of snuck off and on his own? he pushed three buttons and he's like, the world is destroyed, <laughs> You don't you don't just happen to bleed audio into There's, the exact I mean, quote that calls for the end of the world. Audio doesn't bleed. Maybe well, it does, but it's never what you want. Bleed. Yeah. Maybe the guy that was so convinced that the end of the world was going to be this last Saturday was behind this. Maybe, mm-hmm. but you know that the minute that the owner of that organization heard what was going on, he immediately said, "Jesse," and he started chasing <laughs> his nephew. I'm telling your mom, and you're grounded. <laughs> You are so in trouble. Yeah. Wow. yeah. So let me ask you this. Do you wish that there was a way for you to know whether or not your feet smelled without asking one of your coworkers to do it and offending them possibly? Ooh, do I wish I had a way to do this? Yes. No. Do you wish you could know the stink level of your feet? Well, my feet don't stink. My feet, my feet smell like... Blossoms in springtime. Alternative facts. No. Well, I don't, I don't, I've never thought of this. This is a great question. So this is in Japan. Okay. There is a cute little robot dog named Hannah Chan. Oh, I love robot dogs. Kind of sounds like Leanna Tan. Yeah. Uh, Hannah means nose in English. Okay. Hannah has a sensor in its nose. It's trained to sniff your feet. Oh, neat. And if your feet smell fresh and dandy... Hannah will wag its tail in delight. Do you have a dog at home? (laughs) No. Okay. Not since I had him check my feet. (laughs) So if your feet are bordering on stinky, it will sound a warning bark. What does that sound like? The warning bark? Yeah. What would that sound like? Well, we've got, got, uh, I think we're going to uh, Ron Broca here in a second. Um, But if your feet are stinky, Stinky Hannah will fall over. I guess oh, Hannah see, passes out, maybe? That's just offensive to you, though. I mean, imagine the impact on your self-esteem if you have stinky feet. True. Every time your little Hannah-chan dog comes over. 
How much would you pay for a robot like this? Zero dollars. What? Well, because you, you're going to spend hundreds of dollars in therapy. Okay, but what about in a place like Japan where it is customary to, before you enter a home, you take off your shoes? Well, what? Okay, may, does the dog just sit by the door? <laughs> and if the dog sits by the door and sniffs feet and then – Stick your feet up to Hannah's nose before you enter our home. But then what do you do with the guy with the stinky feet? Do you like not allow him in? Sorry. There's a screening process in every home in Japan. Hannah-chan says you stink. <laughs> so sorry. We're going to need to have you go outside and here's a bucket. $9,280. What? Yeah. To have your somebody sniff in your feet? I'd yeah. do it for 200 bucks an hour. <laughs> that's, your, that's your price point. Huh? And I'll even talk them out of it. I'll like say, you know what? It's not you. It's your feet. Is it's that can't. another one of the excuses you used when you broke up with your girlfriends? Yeah. It's, it's not, not you. Not it's you. Hannah Chan says your feet stink. Sorry. Okay. So you've already mentioned you've – You've led us to believe that your feet are just rosy smelling. I, you could eat breakfast off my feet. They're so great. Hmm. Well, I wonder what the, the feet of the other MT News team smells like. Hmm. Hey, and speaking of that, yeah. Ron Brokaw is live at this factory where they produce these dogs uh, to give us some more information. Cool. Are you sure these dogs are functioning properly? Well, I don't know. Maybe they've got a short of their wiring. Don't you dare judge me. This is a genetic problem, okay? Just, just go to commercial break or something. Imagine for a second that you had an illness that no one understood or even believed in. Think of how, uh, you know, how would people treat you? How frustrating would that be for you? I mean, and who could you even talk to about it? At times, you'd be called attention-seeking or lazy, while your self-esteem and personal morale take a hit after hit. That kind of loneliness could be crippling to a person. So how could you survive something like that? In her new book, uh, Through the Shadow Lands, science journalist Julie Raymeyer uh, walks us through her similar experience and how she was able to find purpose and joy while on on the healing path. Julie, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I've, it's amazing this, how this topic came up because I've had two or three clients, three clients now over the last two months diagnosed with, um, with something that may even be chronic fatigue syndrome, uh-huh. and they are going through exactly what you went through, where they, nobody knows exactly what they've got. They've been to 10 specialists, and everybody just sends them to another thing. There's a little hope that maybe we have a diagnosis, and in reality, nothing happens. It's, it was, it's so difficult for these people. It is a very difficult process, and it really feels like you kind of fall off the edge of the earth, like you expect that the medical system will be there for you, that you know there is a way of understanding what's going on, and then you discover that none of it None of it is there. It's chronic. Is it called chronic fatigue syndrome? You, you, in your article, you talk about how when you have a disease that nobody understands or gets, they don't even. You don't even have a name that helps you. That's right. Understand yes. it. Even even at the level of name, you feel abandoned. So you know the most common name for this illness is chronic fatigue syndrome, but it's a terrible, terrible name <laughs> because it suggests that this is just 
you know, being tired all the time. And it's really not just being tired all the time. It's a, it's a great misunderstanding. I mean, for me, for example, I would literally get paralyzed. Like I couldn't turn over in bed sometimes. It's a very different thing from just mm. being tired. So then the, the kind of alternate name is, is myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is quite a mouthful. Um, I tend to call it uh, MECFS which is, you know, for myaldic encephalomyelitis and chronic fatigue syndrome, which many federal agencies now call the illness. M-E-C-F-S. Hmm. And what are some of the symptoms that, that people are looking for? So beyond being tired, which is true, is a, you know, a kind of devastating level of fatigue is part of it. But more importantly, the hallmark symptom is that exercise makes you feel much worse. Hmm. And that's not something that is just, you know, an extension of what one ordinarily feels. Usually if you exercise, you know, you may feel tired immediately afterward, but overall it makes you feel better. With chronic fatigue syndrome, the next day you feel terrible. You feel much worse than you did before. And uh, the thing that I learned from experience, and that I think pretty much all patients learn eventually, is that the only way I could be active was to stop the very first moment I thought, I'm a little tired. And if I did that, then I could avoid the crash the next day. And that allowed me to maximize how active I could be. There are other symptoms that are important too. Uh, Patients experience cognitive problems. You know, you just can't think straight. That includes neurological problems like the ones that I have had um, with not being able to walk. Another important symptom is what's called orthostatic intolerance. When you stand up, your body can't regulate your blood pressure and heart rate. Mm. And so that's why patients so often feel just terrible when they're standing. And it's not just a matter of getting dizzy. It's, um, you know, a general kind of just feeling terrible when you stand up. And you, I mean, the the funny thing about this then, so they, it sounds like they would then send you to a cardiologist who would then send you to a neurologist who would then right. send you to a rheumatologist. And meanwhile, you're not getting any answers. You're not getting any treatment. Um, then, then they start reaching a point with like the clients I've worked with where uh, they start thinking it's just – um, it's something else. It's psychological. It's psychosomatic. Exactly. You, you know, there's no, there's no real cause for any of this except your brain, your mental state. Right. This comes up over and over again. And I think pretty much, you know, again, every, every patient at some point ends up facing this. I went to see a neurologist who specialized in gait disorders. And when he couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, and he said that I must have conversion disorder, which basically is that it's all in my head. Mm. And, you know, doctors don't like not having answers. Yeah, right. And so, unfortunately, they tend to fill that gap with this explanation that it's just psychological. That It, it seems like it's because the psychiatry side of medicine seems like the least understood and explored. Uh, right. And so yeah, that's so the, the easy basket me. to throw it in. Right. The thing for me about that was certainly there's a level that it's it's offensive, but I could get over that. What I couldn't get over was that it was so useless. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So now what? We don't know. We don't know what to do. Exactly. With it. Yes. When the neurologist said that about conversion disorder, I was like, OK, so how do we treat it? And he had nothing to say. <laughs> you know, it was just basically a way of getting rid of me. 
that that really is what um, comes out in your book uh, through the Shadowlands is that there's there's just this lonely, hopeless journey that you're on with with and you turn to the supposed experts and they can't help you. So you turn to other experts, you think, but they're kind of on the they're on the cusp of of normal or of acceptable. And um, all the, sometimes they, they have extreme, you know, measures, extreme ideas. Talk about talk about that journey. Yeah. So what, after I got diagnosed, then I turned to Dr. Google. And to <laughs> by the way, he's 19 today. Happy birthday, Dr. Google. Happy birthday. Um, knows a lot for being 19 years old. Really does. <laughs> um, and I discovered that there was precisely one chronic fatigue syndrome specialist in the entire San Francisco Bay Area that I could find on Google. And so I went to this person, and he had things in his office like you know, a picture of a nubile young woman lying on her side with her smooth hip and an advertisement for a cellulite treatment, which huh. completely creeped me out. I'm yeah. a science writer, and you know I expect evidence-based treatments, not cellulite removal treatments. <laughs> um, as it turned out, he did have some reasonable-sounding things to offer, I, it was hard for me to evaluate exactly, but, you know, various supplements and scientific-sounding ideas, although none of them ended up helping. And I discovered that you know, the people who I could find initially who seemed like they had anything to offer at all lived in this kind of borderland between <laughs> like real doctors and quacks. Yeah. And it was exceedingly uncomfortable for me. Mm. But you have nowhere else to go. That's right. That's right. Well, except, as it turns out, I did have one other place to go. It just took me a long time to get there. And that was the patient community. So initially, I was very skeptical of the patient community. I went on to online forums, and I was shocked by the desperation of patients. It just seemed like a lot of really miserable people. And I was also shocked by the unscientific treatments that they tried. Um, you know, things like shining a red light up your nose. Oh, <laughs> um, okay. Uh, that That's just, one way to do it. Yeah, it did not seem like plausible treatments to me. But then I got even sicker. I got so sick that I often couldn't turn over in bed. And, and I reached a real level of desperation where I truly run out of all reasonable options. And so I ended up turning back to the patient community with a kind of open-mindedness that I had not had before. And I ended up pursuing a treatment that initially I was, again, exceedingly skeptical of. The patients claimed that by taking really extreme measures to avoid mold, they had experienced these incredible improvements. Hmm. And I saw no reason to believe this was true for me. I had never lived in an obviously moldy house. I had never like gone into a building and suddenly felt much worse. Uh, I'd lived in lots of different places and never seemed to matter. And I also thought that this idea had kind of a bad smell about it, as it were. <laughs> um, I didn't know that much about it. but And I knew that there was something true about 
the idea that mold could cause health problems, but I also had a vague sense that the science had been stretched beyond the breaking point. So I was very skeptical, but I was also out of reasonable ideas. So the only thing that was left were unreasonable ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess is that the key that you you have to keep searching and you had, I guess, tried the medical avenue and, and gone to every credible source that you knew of there. Then you – then by going to the patient community and, and not giving up, you were eventually led to kind of follow the mold track. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And And part of what appealed to me about that idea was that it was a kind of testable hypothesis. What these patients told me was that I should go to the desert for two weeks with none of my own belongings, since my own stuff presumably might be contaminated with mold, and that at the end of that time, that when I went home, I would react really clearly and strongly to my own stuff. That was their prediction. They said I might or might not feel better while I was there, but when I went home, I'd really react to my stuff, and then I would know that mold was the problem for me. Hmm. And I decided it was worth a try. So you head to the desert. That's exactly right. So I headed off to the desert. We're speaking, by the way, with Julie Ray Meyer, who's the author of the book, Through the Shadowlands. She's a science journalist uh, that's talking about her own experience, um, ba- basically battling a, a CFS or MECFS, um, which is myalgic encephalomyelitis. Well done. Wow, that's a that is a mouthful. <laughs> um, chronic fatigue syndrome. and uh, But I think you're teaching us some interesting principles about how any of us could go through, you know, kind of an undiagnosable problem. And one of the things I'm hearing is you used you, – you, you weren't able to necessarily use uh, science at all times, but you used the scientific method. Absolutely. That was really important to me because I felt like I needed some way of, of staying grounded, particularly as I – began to pursue ideas that I was skeptical of, then I needed to know that I wasn't fooling myself or, um, you know, going off on a, on a total wild goose chase and convincing myself it was real when it wasn't. Huh. And, and really the idea for you to get out to the desert, um, to Death Valley, um, uh, and do this science, this scientific approach of leaving all of your stuff at home, going and staying there for two weeks where mold doesn't grow, I guess, because of intense heat um, or it doesn't – I guess it doesn't grow as much. Right. Uh, um, you, you also – it gave you a break. It gave you a chance, a, a vacation of sorts. It did. It ended up being a really rather profound experience for me. Um, in a in a way that surprised me a lot. By the time I went, I really felt as though I was going to the desert to die. I was so at the end of my rope, hmm. you know. I was out of ideas. I was really too sick to even take care of myself, though I was living by myself. I didn't have family to turn to. I was running out of money. I just couldn't see a path forward for my future. And... So by the time I went, I just had this feeling like the way I had lived my life up to that point, like trying to keep everything together, be a good citizen, a good, you know, build my career, contribute to society, like I just couldn't do it anymore. And 
And I didn't know what that meant. I mean, I, I didn't actually expect to, you know, be carried out in a coffin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I just had this very strong feeling about it that that somehow the path I had been following was at an end. And when I was there, I kind of discovered what that meant. Like, I found that all of my expectations about my life fell away. Like, I gave up on all of the things that had felt so critical and important to me all my life. And I discovered this feeling of freedom, really. Like, it was enough for me to just be alive, you know, to just be there and be breathing, to, hmm. to, you know, sweep out the sand in my tent. Like, that felt like accomplishment enough for me. And I discovered a kind of joy that I really hadn't been able to feel before in all of my kind of effort and busyness. And, and a, a, a kind of spaciousness emerged from that that I had never imagined as a possibility for me. Is it is it possible that the this the kind of because you're you're basically um, sharing with us a spiritual like transcendent moment? Um, yeah, but did, much so. is it possible that the spiritual moment is what caused the healing? Well, you know, there's there's no way for me to know. For yeah, sure. but but um, it's it's interesting how that's so where you go is about this major mind change you had, right. Right, and and this is one of the things that I do a lot of thinking about in the book is trying to trying to tease out the role of spirituality and psychology and kind of like like what's reasonable to expect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because when I first got sick, I very much thought of it in kind of psycho spiritual terms, and I my expectation was that I could just kind of grow my life and that eventually the symptoms would fade away and that you know didn't happen mm-hmm. <laughs> right and so um so on the one hand yes it's definitely true that i ended up having this kind of extraordinary um improvement just at the time that i had this extraordinary kind of spiritual experience but it's also true that I'm someone who is very oriented toward self-growth. Yeah. And so if it had happened at a different moment, odds are that I would have been in the midst of some other kind of spiritual growth. Right. <laughs> you know, perhaps not quite so dramatic as in Death Valley. That was a very intense experience for me. But I could easily have credited some other aspect of spiritual growth. And when, you know many others had not in fact improved my health so it's it's hard yeah. to tease out yeah and, and maybe it's both right or maybe exactly. it's because it's so complicated yeah yeah exactly i think it's both and i think trying to um divvy these things up and say you know if an illness is real then it is strictly physical and if it's psychological it, and if it has any psychological component that means that it's a you know fake illness yeah right that's really really misguided and that in fact we are like our physical and spiritual and psychological selves are so tightly woven together that often we really can't 
make these distinctions. No, and maybe too that's what has to happen is as your body was healing, um, it also allowed a space for more spirituality to come in. Yes, I think that's an excellent point. And to put that in somewhat geeky terms, there's a difference between causation and correlation. Exactly, right. Yeah, so, you know, causation says, okay, my spiritual growth caused my improvement. Mm -hmm. Correlation is just, well, they went together. And the very tricky thing is, you know, what we actually see is correlation. These two things went together. The causation could go either way. This is exactly what you were saying. It could be that the spiritual growth led to the physical improvement. It could be that the physical improvement led to the spiritual growth. Yeah, absolutely. And we just don't have a way of knowing. But, but I guess what's super powerful, Julie, is you somehow got there to have the healing. And That's... something else uh, to me was driving you, uh, you know, at a deeper level. It got you to the place where you could heal physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, or begin the healing, really, because this, you, you, you still battle this. I mean, right. you then tell the story about going, I mean, getting into the moldies and uh, learning a lot about mold, but then moving back home or going back to your house, feeling better until the neighbor's house floods and starts yes. sending mold spores over to your house. Yes, which has been my, my struggle of recent months. My, my next door neighbor's house flooded and they made some unfortunate decisions that led my house and land to be basically fumigated Ugh. with mold many, many times, which has um, made it very difficult for me to be in my own home. And in fact, I've spent much of the last, oh, eight months um, living in a van um, that I've converted, um, which, you know, is not what I would order up. I love my home and yeah. um, I love being, you know, having that stability at the same time. Man, oh man, pretty great. <laughs> yeah, it probably is. <laughs> Going isn't into it? these, you know, beautiful places in the wilderness, and uh, it's um, it's been it's been a kind of wonderful adventure, and also just a major, major drag. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it, it, it's interesting how that goes together. Um, uh, we only have a couple more minutes, but first of all, tell us how you're doing now overall, and and really, what advice do you give to somebody? Um, who's going through either uh, MECFS or any other, you know, kind of undiagnosable, you know, illness. Right. So at this point, I'm doing well as long as I am successful at avoiding mold. And, I mean, doing well on the level of, you know, like a couple weeks ago, I climbed Arapaho Pass um, outside of Boulder, which is uh, starts at 10,000 feet and ends up at 12,000 feet. Wow. Um, so yeah, when as long as I'm as long as I'm free of mold, I'm really great. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's pretty darn pretty darn wonderful. I'm yeah. so grateful. And advice uh, for others that yeah, are advice for others. Gosh, there's so many different things that come to mind that I'd like to say. Um, I guess a big part of it is just to keep on going and um, and to find ways of kind of embracing the experience as much as it totally sucks. I don't mean just, like, have a good attitude, which, you know, often I think actually having a bad attitude can be a lot more helpful. (laughs) Yeah. Having a good old wine, because you've got a lot of good reasons for it. (laughs) But at the same time, I think there's a way that it's possible to say, okay, this is the experience I'm having, and I'm going to suck the marrow out of it. You know, I'm going to live this perfectly wretched experience as fully as I can and um, 
to kind of say yes to it without necessarily liking it. Mm. Yeah. No, and that's probably the best advice we can give is almost accept what it is, accept it and 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 start learning and then follow I like I like I think you said, follow your heart, follow the science, and uh, and just keep digging. Don't give up. Julie Raymeyer is her name. The book, Chronic Fatigue, uh, or the, sorry, the book is called Through the Shadowlands, and it is her personal walk through a, her experience with uh, a disease that hasn't effectively been named or even understood. And it's a, I think it's a great uh, guide for anybody that's going through a similar process. We will continue the learning right here on the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, Brent, Brett Hunt, um, at Brett underscore tweets, uh, he, he gave us the answer about why they call Slurpees oh, Slurpees. good. And okay. not Suckies, because Slurpees, he says, it's most likely gets its name from the sound you make at the end of the Slurpee when you slurp that last bit through the spoon straw. That's a good point. You're trying to Slurpee. get every last ounce yeah. of that Slurpee it's out that of the cup. It's 1% of the last Slurp. It's not the 99% of the other just flowing ice flow into your gullet. But then maybe they should just call it a tappy. Because instead of trying to get it with a straw, usually you pick up the yeah. cup and you try to tap the a bottom tappy. of it. Yeah. Tappy. tappy. But tappy. Too close to taffy maybe. Yeah. And I, I think know. that's what Terry does to his boy when he's <laughs> making noises chewing. He taps him. <laughs> So I think we didn't want to we didn't want to confuse that. Hey, we have some more empty news for you um, that that really is important if if you're into bats. But Are who, you into bats? Uh, just baseball bats. I'm guessing, uh, and these are a couple of local stories. I'm guessing the the kids at this high school are not fans of bats. No. They might like Batman, but there's a there's a bat infestation at the Salt Lake City High School, and it prompted it to cancel its after-school program so that school workers could root out the flying mammals. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, I know we don't pay you much as a teacher, but can you get in the cafeteria and just uh, grab about five of those bats? That'd be great. Uh, watch out. Don't let them bite you. <laughs> So janitors at the at the city's West High School rounded up more than 300 bats from Monday through Wednesday in a three-day period. That's 100 bats a day. Wow. So uh, it prompted the school to close its doors Wednesday afternoon. Uh, some flying bats were caught mid-flight by janitors. After that, they were probably like, yeah. I deserve a raise for this. <laughs> Others were found sleeping in classroom corners. <sighs> Uh, Salt Lake City School District spokesperson Jason Olson says the high school lives in, or it lies in a migratory bat path. Oh, well, that's good to know. Yeah, bat path. Hmm. That's a, I think that's that's where Batman always flies his plane. Yeah, he's in the bat path. So this is actually uh, above average. So they they do typically get bats at the school, but this year it was above average for some reason. I'm not sure why. Well, it's because we're all – it's because of um, STEM. They're doing all the STEM work now in high schools, so everybody's trying to get above average. How do you think that would affect your test scores if you're sitting there in class trying to take a test and there's this bat fluttering around bat your head? Guano <laughs> hitting your – it probably doesn't help. It's very distracting. But bats are cute. Once you get through their leathery winged arms and their kind of nasty rat bat 
body. Once you get your rabies shot, they're just as cute as can be. Oh, don't you just love snuggling with a rat? <laughs> that is gross. So now we're going from uh, from bats to cougars. Ooh. So another local story, and this is apparently, according to you, this is not something that is new. This happens, happens all frequently. Of the time. But uh, there were some Utah students who were arrested and facing criminal mischief charges after defacing BYU's Cougar statue yeah. before the teams played in week two. Oh! I know. It's the rivalry, right? So on the rivalry, the Utah fans defaced BYU Cougar stuff and the Cougars. I don't know if the Cougars – they do. They do. So they probably They've done it. they would have gotten away with it. I think of Scooby Doo. I would have gotten away with it too, except they went back to take pictures of their work. Yeah, not very smart. Which why didn't they just do while they were there? Duh. And they're wearing their they're probably wearing their Utah regalia. They're like their jerseys or their shirts. Good point. And, I've got another theory though. What? What if it was BYU fans? What? What, what if? What if, what if BYU was doing their own cougar? What if BYU, uh, the football team, was doing so poorly that BYU fans just took it to the extreme? And oh, oh, <laughs> that is yeah, playing the old false flag deal. No, no, that could never happen. No one would try to deface your own cougar, right? We're still talking about the statue here, right? Oh no, I, was, okay. I thought we had moved on. <laughs> To another story. Um, anyway, uh, that's not funny. But um, they caught the guys, too, and the guys had paint on them, didn't they? Yeah. They had paint on their, yeah. like, hands. All right. So it was probably these guys. Yeah. And it, many would say that's, you know, that's Utah. But I, I graduated from the bars. University of Utah. <gasps> so I would have known better. And I graduated from BYU. Wait a minute. I Where would, were you three weeks ago at around 12.30 p.m.? I was up in Salt Lake City picking up bats. Okay. Yeah. Your out story of, checks. Out of my kids. It school. checks. Yeah, totally good. Let's uh, take a quick break. When we come back, Baus is in the house. McKenna Baus will be with us talking about a little mind bender about happiness. It might just, it seriously, might blow your mind. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome to her house. She is looking about. She is here to break down things you didn't know now. Her name is McKenna Baus. Baus is in the house, and uh, she she comes in with little mind benders, little research data points that might blow your mind. I, and today you're fun. talking happiness. Yeah. So a lot of times when we think about being happy, you know, we're thinking about. Just that that is the ultimate goal. That's it. You, I mean, you've got to be happy. Yeah. Uh, you know, everything you're doing, if you're feeling any emotion, happy is the one to feel. <laughs> That's right. And there's some studies showing that, you know, that may not be the healthiest course forward. Like, because happy would, I guess, presume that you feel no negative. Exactly. You only feel positive. Correct. And so there's a study, uh, there's a couple studies actually that have been done um, all about the idea of emotional diversity. Hmm. And what they are coming together to figure out and to show is the fact that you're going to be a lot healthier if you're feeling a wide range of emotions. And that includes negative ones. Interesting. But if you're having just a narrow range of emotions that's often associated with higher rates of inflammation and a lot of other stuff. But when you have that wide range, you're going to have 
less medication use, lower government health care costs, and fewer days in the hospital. Really? Mm-hmm. Having the wider range? The wider range, including the bad. Well, because if all you think you have to be is happy, then it seems like you're like, if you're not feeling that, then I got to go to the doctor to find out why. I need to. I need more medicine. I need more drugs. I need more everything. Yeah, that's part of it. Another part of it, I think, is there's almost a stress that comes along with trying to maintain this Happiness. level of control yeah. over your emotions that isn't something... That is reasonable to expect anybody right. to Well, and wouldn't you have. need – you'd need bad days to know that you just had a really happy day. Exactly. I think you know you, the highs complement the lows. Yeah. One of the things that they've looked at is a possible sort of reason or why this might be the case. They're looking at the, um, the idea that, you know, in the environment, biodiversity, um, that – increases the resilience of an ecosystem, things like that. And it's the same concept with our emotions, that when you have a bunch of different emotions that you're able to cycle through, you spend less time stuck on the bad ones. There's less anxiety and stress associated with all of that as well. You you, You need diversity. You need ethnic diversity. You need biodiversity. And you need emotional diversity. Correct. And if not... You're going to – and it will end up costing you more more stress, more anxiety. And I too, I guess then you're never happy where you are, right? So part of being happy is being OK to have a bad day. Yeah, I think that that's a definitely a really healthy place to be. And finding happiness in that day. For sure. Um, and I mean I should you know, make it clear. It's not confirmed that it's the emotional diversity is what is causing yeah. the better health. Um, but there is a correlation that there – that's sure right. about. And I think that, you know, it for me at least, it it makes me even have more reasons to be positive because not just happiness, but positive emotions in general, yeah. those do tend to have their own benefits and well, that and if, mindset and helps. If you can turn it, right? So if you can turn the bad day, the bad moment or the negative, you know, the sick, bad, bad day mm-hmm. into something positive, then you've got more resiliency, which will just perpetuate more. Happiness. Yep. Good stuff. McKenna Baus is her name. Baus is in the house doing a little mind bender for us. So uh, allow in all all feelings. Don't just think it can only be happiness. Good stuff. McKenna, thank you. We'll continue the journey, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. It's the house of Baus. It's the House of Bows.